Flyover Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From this undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. Many U.S. officials in both parties glad that a leading Iranian military figure is gone, but critics calling it a reckless act that could lead to dangerous reprisals. Democrats warning of massive consequences after that U.S. attack, labeling it reckless. Members of Congress are being much more direct in their criticism of the president, their concerns about this strike that killed Qasem Soleimani. On the campaign trail, 2020 Democrats slamming the president. Senator Elizabeth Warren calling the move reckless. Senator Bernie Sanders warning of dangerous dangerous escalation and former Vice President Joe Biden writing no American will mourn Soleimani's passing but President Trump just tossed a stick of dynamite into a tinderbox. While Democrats they agree that the Iranian commander was an enemy of the U.S. they are warning that this is a reckless escalation that could have serious dire consequences and Democrats are furious that Congress was not consulted. One senator Senator Udall tweeting Trump is bringing our nation to the brink of an illegal war. Speaker Nancy Pelosi condemned the president's actions, saying America and the world cannot afford to have tensions escalate to the point of no return. And chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Elliot Engel, said the attack raises serious legal problems. And welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast. It's the 6th of January, year of our Lord, 2020. I went early today because of this weekend's events and my complete rage towards Democrats' and the media that we will get to in the bulk of our show today as they once again root for the opposing team, Iran. But I'll frame that when we get to it. It'll be our military corner today. It'll be up front. But I wanted to start the show with statistics. That's right. So knowing that SoundCloud sucks, doesn't tell us uh, hardly anything, and half the people I've talked to say you double it because it doesn't pick it up, but just off of SoundCloud, we had 6,500 listens for the year of 2019, which is the most ever. Um, It never breaks down or makes any sense to what the top tracks are or anything, because if you add up the top tracks, it doesn't come to 65, and then there's days that I'll have 400 listens on a track that doesn't go into my statistics, which is just bizarre. So, uh, to say the least, this isn't that good. Um, and the top listeners, I won't go into because it just doesn't match. None of it matches. It, it's unbelievably how bad this is. But, overall, a, a fantastic year, and I thank all of you for the listens. Um, of course, the United States had the biggest, Germany, Indonesia, and then for the top cities that will break down, uh, later was Clifton, New Jersey, Portland, Oregon, and San Jose, California. Um, it looks like majority of it is RSS feeds. Uh, Podcast Attic has the most for apps. And, well, no, for the apps, it's Podcast Attic. For just RSS feeds, 
they have it listed twice, RSS apps and RSS feeds. So the number one RSS app was Podcast Addict, iTunes, and then uh, direct downloads. And then third-party apps, it says RSS feed was basically 5,500 of them. So it's very confusing. But the countries kind of blew me the way. It just blew me away, all the countries that listen to this little old podcast. Uh, United States, of course, Germany, Indonesia we spoke of. But Russian Federation, Mexico, Spain, France, um, Ireland, Brazil, United Kingdom, Norway, Denmark, Canada. Surprising any Canucks will listen to the show. Australia, Italy, India, Morocco, Pakistan, Netherlands, Philippines, Singapore, Austria, Japan, Turkey, Argentina, Vietnam, Colombia, Switzerland, Ukraine, Algeria, Poland, Serbia, Thailand, Ecuador, Egypt, Peru, Dominican Republic, Czech Republic, Bosnia, Hungary, Iraq, Chile, Albania, Mongolia. As that we were about to talk about Iran, you notice Iran's not in there because nobody in Iran can even get this, nor could China. But uh, Mongolia, El Salvador, and Nepal. There were three lessons in Nepal. That's pretty interesting. For the top cities, as spoken, uh, Clinton, New Jersey, Portland, Oregon, San Jose, Sydney, Florida, Clarksville, Tennessee, New York. Had quite a bit. Uh, Bernadillo, New Mexico. I've seen that sign. Mountain View, California, Charlottesville, North Carolina, Ashburn, Virginia, Jakarta, Beaverton, Oregon, Seattle, Washington, Heidelberg, Lockau, and Villinger, Schwenigen for Germany, Dublin, Moscow, Bronx, Berlin, a whole bunch of German cities. I can't even say most of them. Hamburg, I know that one. Uh... Oregon City, Oregon, Federal Way, Washington, Bergen, Norway, Singapore. A, I don't want to give it out, but it's actually coordinates in Massachusetts, which is very interesting. That's what came up. Um, I won't give out the grid coordinates for whoever that was. San Francisco, Middletown, Virginia, Newsburyport, Massachusetts, Westminster, Colorado, that's uh, my sis. Hey, sis, what's up? Uh, Alexandria, Hawajima, Japan, Lebanon, New Jersey, and Piedmont, South Carolina. So to all of those out there, once again, thank you very much for listening to this little old podcast. I, once again, I hope it's entertaining. I at least make you laugh a little bit. Um. But I, I wanted to cover the stats because I do it every year. And then I segue directly into the top shows of the year. So um, I was going to go by shows. This year I decided to just go by networks because it pretty much sums it up. And, of course, Fox and Fox News had the biggest uptick. Fox News, but Fox, the network actually had a big increase that we'll talk about in a second that got decreased by their stupidity. Um, HBO, of course, because Game of Thrones. Inspiration Network really had a surge this year compared to usual. And I think that, and as I'll talk about MeTV and the top channels, 
Uh, I think it has a lot to do with people who are just sick of the bullshit and they're just trying to find something that is entertaining and not PC nightmare. Uh, the big losers for networks was uh, Cinemax, Basic Cable General Entertainment Networks. AMC was down 22%, FX 21%, USA down 18%, OWN down 17%, TBS down 17%, TNT down 14%. Kids and young adult TV all tank this year. And comedy TV. Uh, the Byron Allen-owned network has a dubious distinction of once again being the least watched rated network of all Nielsen averaging 1,000 viewers in primetime, and that's down from 2,000 in 2014. So the comedy channel's not doing too good. But top networks was CBS... With an average of 7,140,000 viewers. NBC with 6,330,000. ABC with 5,192,000. Fox 4,623,000. That's up 3%. Uh, NBC is down 19 compared to last year. CBS and ABC are all down 4%. Fox News Channel's up 1% with 2.5 million of view. ESPN's down 2 with 1.7. Uh, MSNBC down three with 1.7, and then we'll just list them. Ion, HGTV, yeah, you haven't heard CNN yet. Univision, Hallmark Channel, you still haven't heard it. USA Network, Telemundo, History, TLC, TBS, Discovery Channel, have you heard it yet? I haven't. TNT, the CW, A&E, Investigation Discovery. I, my wife doesn't even watch the Investigation Discovery for Christ's sake. And then you have CNN, down 4% from last year. It averages 965,000 viewers. That's probably employees. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it. They barely beat the Food Network with 951,000. Bravo, Nickelodeon, AMC, MeTV is number 27, and it's gone up. 2% from last year, and that is my favorite channel. I watch, I record a lot of me TV. Lifetime FX, Adult Swim, HBO, TV Land, Inspiration up 13%, which is why they made the list. MTV's down 18%. Freeform, Hallmark Movies and Mysteries keeps tanking. Nick at Night, VH1, Disney, Sci-Fi, Travel Channel, WeTV, Paramount, Animal, Nat Geo, Disney, Unimass, uh, let's see, but OWN is down 27%. NBC Sports is down 20% because all I play is fucking soccer. I'm just scanning. Uh, FX1, which I don't think is that good, or, or Fox Sports 1, excuse me, it's down 10 ESPN2 is down 6%. Bounce TV's up. NFL Network is down 14%. A number 66. Uh, let's see. Sundance, down 19%. That's good. Heroes and Icons is up 18%. That used to be the military channel. Weather channel's down 5 but that's because everybody in the world has their own weather app. Stars channel's number 86. And to round out the top 100, Reels Network. That, I used to tape that, but it's down. Uh, let's see, F. Smithsonian's down two. 
up channels down five, and the last one's American Heroes, which they now changed. So I think that's the beginning of the year, and then it went up. I don't know. I thought it was the same fucking channel. But to show, I, I think that the, re, the, the lessening of viewership and really the push for more old channels can be exampled by Deputy. Uh, this week, Deputy premiered, and for those who don't keep up with network TV, it was supposed to be this rugged Western-style sheriff who's going to kick ass. And I was really excited for it. It looked really interesting because they didn't show what the show really was. And the opening scene is them bashing ice. And this sheriff, who's being questioned, went through a neighborhood and told him that ice was coming. The next scene is a gender-neutral chick dressing like a boy. The third scene is the gay wing of the prison. The fourth scene is me hitting stop, deleting, and not recording anymore. I then went online, and the entire world was me. I'm sorry, liberals. It wasn't you. Tweets were along the line of what I said. I was really looking forward to this show. And then the first scene is dogging ice. The second scene is gender neutral. The third scene is gay. And basically this is a SJW agenda show. You're just writing it to push an agenda. I wanted to be entertained. You are deleted. That has been liked or retweeted 50 times. It would have been more, but there are nothing but tweets like that on their Catch This Show Tonight Fox Twitter. It was just SJW shit. And people are sick of that. Once again, it's not homophobia. It's not transphobia. It's not xenophobia. It's we believe in ICE because that's the law. If you don't want that, do what you should have done when you held the Congress and the Senate and pass comprehensive immigration reform. Make it easier for people to get in. Make it easier for people to become U.S. citizens. But instead, you push the ACA, which destroyed the health care system, and made all of us pay for higher premium, which you did on purpose so that it would fail, so you could try to do single payer. Oh, and by the way, you can't keep your doctor. So you did that and said, Democrats, and then when Republicans wanted, you didn't do it because you didn't want a Republican president to get the credit or Republican House and Senate. So you fought those things. So now you just do, fuck the, the law, we do what we want, like a fucking child. People don't want to see that. They don't want to see gender neutral, and they damn sure don't want to see gay shit on every fucking show. If it's natural to the script, it makes sense. But this was bam, 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 right on the front. Hey, we are about SJW nonsense. And that's not what people are into. They don't want that. They want a show, not propaganda. So I, I was just so disappointed. It looked really good. But that's that's our media. Anyway, you look at it. Um, Hollywood, blah, blah, blah. I'm not covering the Golden Globes tonight. Uh, I'll cover that. Well, I might slip it in the end. Nothing's come out yet. I'm looking for articles because you de- you know I didn't watch that shit. But um, let's go straight in 
to the embassy attack follow-up with what we've done, some facts from the State Department, and then the reaction from our media and Democrats to the President of the United States taking out a fucking terrorist leader from Iran who's directly responsible for wounding, maiming, and killing U.S. soldiers. And by the end of this, if you don't have to go take a comet bath, I'm going to question your Americanism. احتفالات بمقتل سليماني هذا حبة الشهداء اللي راحت ودم الشهداء والضحايا والشهداء العراقي كلهم طلعت اليوم that are that is Iraqis dancing in the street after our drone strike that didn't make your media that's not going to make your media. Because the mourners that attacked our embassy and yada, yada, yeah. Photos reveal damage to U.S. Embassy in Baghdad following attack by support of Iran-backed militia. They gutted the place. It is totally fucked up and it will not be inhabitable. Articles. Anyone who tries to overrun the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad will run into a buzzsaw, Joint Chief says. Uh, Baghdad would be akin to running at a buzzsaw and that the U.S. will strike again to pre- prevent further attacks. Comments with Joint Chairman Army General Mark Milley came following a Pentagon decision Tuesday to deploy 750 paratroopers to the 82nd Airborne in Kuwait and rapid enforcement of U.S. Embassy in Baghdad with 100 Marines signed a special purpose, which we covered last podcast. Thousand more paratroopers are prepared to head to the Middle East. 82nd Airborne Division is preparing to deploy thousands more para- paratroopers to the Middle East. Heightened tensions. 750 paratroopers from the 2nd Battalion 1st Brigade Combat Team deployed the region after protest. Um, Airstrike kills five members of Iran-backed militia, Iraqi official says. An airstrike Friday hit two cars carrying members of the Iran-backed militia north of Iraq's capital, killing five people. The official added that identification of, the identity of those kills was not immediately known. It was not immediately clear who launched the strike, but a U.S. official told AP the attack was not an American military attack. The strike was confirmed by Iran-backed popular mobilization forces, which denied that any of its top leaders were among the five killed. Ooh, really? The group said the strike targeted one of its medical convoys. The latest operation came almost 24 hours after the U.S. airstrike killed Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. Yeah. Which is our next article. U.S. kills two Iranian military leaders bigger than bin Laden. 
al-Baghdadi, report says. U.S. military forces reportedly killed two top Iranian military commanders involved in terrorism on Thursday night in Iraq in an airstrike in which analysts said was significantly bigger than killing al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden and ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Iranian Major General Qasem Soleimani, head of the Quds Force, and Iraqi militant commander Abu Malad al-Mahoudis were the two Iranian military leaders who were killed. Al-Mahoudis was in charge of the Iranian-linked Popular Mobilization Force. BBC reported, Ali Hashem reported, BBC reporter Ali Hashem reported, My sources suggest the commander of the IRGC Quds Force, Qasem Soleimani, and Deputy Chief of PMU, Abu Mahad Mahamadehez, were in the convoy hit by the strike air strike near Baghdad Airport. You would think this is just a great thing. He's a bad dude. Fact sheet. This is a fact sheet. Since 1998, Soleimani commanded Iraq's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Quds Force, the terror arm of the Iranian regime. The IRGCQF is tasked with planning and executing terror and military operations outside Iran's border. Under Soleimani's command, the IRGCQF has fueled destabilizing sectarian conflicts throughout the Middle East for decades. The IRGCQF continues to wage an illegal campaign of terrorism, assassinations, and violence at Soleimani's direction and with his oversight and guidance. The IRGCQF has planned and conducted terrorist attacks across six continents and inside the United States. The United States designated this force, a foreign terrorist organization, for its activities. The United States designated Soleimani as a specially designated global terrorist. As a leader of the IRGCQF, Soleimani was directly responsible for arming, funding, and training proxy groups in Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Iran, Yemen, Afghanistan, and elsewhere. Operations carried out by the proxy groups have led to the deaths and suffering of tens of thousands, including many hundreds of Americans. These proxies routinely target and kill civilians, intensify sectarian conflicts, and prolong the suffering of innocent men, women, and children. Soleimani personally directed and provided arms to militants in Iraq for more than a decade. The militant militia undermined the sovereignty of the Iraqi state, threatened legitimacy of Iraqi security forces, and targeted American citizens and forces. With Soleimani's support and lethal assistance, proxies of the IRGCQF targeted and killed over 600 Americans between 2003 and 2011. Others have it higher for just the IEDs and the high-intensity IEDs used for armor vehicles that came from Iran. We can confirm that in the past several days, Somali had traveled to the Middle East, coordinating further imminent large-scale attacks against U.S. diplomats and service members. These threats were highly credible, and intelligence is sound. Soleimani travel also violated the ban imposed by United Security Council. 
Recent orders given by Soleimani dramatically escalate Iran's campaign of violence and terrorism against Americans and American interests in the Middle East. He orchestrated a series of attacks against American forces in Iraq in the past several months, culminating in the rocket attack on December 27, 2019, which resulted in the deaths of American citizens, wounded four American service members, and threatened the lives of many more American personnel. Soleimani also ordered the assault on the American embassy in Baghdad. General Soleimani continued to command Iranian-supported proxies in Iraq, which posed an escalating threat to the lives of Americans. For his actions, Soleimani has been designated sanctioned by the United Nations, European Union, and the United States, and is banned from international travel by the United Nations Security Council Resolution 2231. In defiance of United Nations Security Council Resolution, however, Soleimani continued to travel to Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon, directing and coordinating lethal action that pose a threat to regional peace and security. Do you need some more proof that this is what we're about to engage in that'll make you have to take a comet bath? 2015, Obama launches 2,800 strikes on Iraq, Syria without congressional approval. U.S. forces have now surpassed 28 strikes against targets in Iraq and Syria under President Obama's war against the Islamic State, all as a part of a conflict Congress has yet to specifically Authorize. Under intense pressure from Capitol Hill, Mr. Obama finally submitted a draft authorization for the use of military force against the Islamic State in February, but it's since languished, caught in the stalemates between those who want tighter restrictions and those who want the president to have a free hand as possible. Now analysts worry that the inaction will set a dangerous precedent and leave Congress shorn of the war-making powers. Robert Elliott Engel. I guess we missed all the Democrats complaining about Obama needing congressional approval when he launched 2,800 strikes in Iraq and Syria. An action of the gravity without involving Congress raises serious legal problems, and it's a front to Congress, Ingalls said. Now, about Trump, he did not say with Obama. Obama versus Trump. The media's terrorist double standards. Recall on April 11, 2011, Barack Obama announced he would be running for a second term. And 22 days later, on May 2, 2011, Navy SEALs in the direct order of the president who was watching via TV cameras in the White House stormed Obama, Osama bin Laden's no longer secret compound in Abbottabad, Pakistan. The reaction of the media... Accolades and lavish praise. The murder of thousands of Americans have been dealt justice. Yes, Obama was running for election, but so what? The president brought justice to the stone-cold killer of America and the media, not to mention Americans in general. Cheered Vice President Biden was applauded when in the 2012 election, he mentioned Obama bailed out General Motors this way. Bin Laden is dead and General Motors is alive. The media ate it up. Contrast that with the media response to President Trump's decision to bring justice to Soleimani. Mark Feinstein noted this from my former CNN colleague, John Berman. Not to diminish the importance of the airstrike in Iraq at the time, but that's nothing compared to the murder, the assassination of General Soleimani. Also on CNN was ex-Obama National Security Advisor, Samantha Vinograd. Vinograd's analysis this way. CNN analyst, all American citizens are now walking prime targets. 
The story says this. CNN National Security Analyst Samantha Vinograd, a former national security official for President Barack Obama, offered a dire warning following President Trump's decision to order the killing of Soleimani, saying that all American citizens are now walking prime targets. Really? Let's see. Is this the same Vinograd who was at described by Mediate, a national security official for Barack Obama? The self-same Barack Obama said the American people that I had a May 2nd. The president, the president, good evening tonight. I can report the American people. Do you remember? The Los Angeles Times wrote an account of the raid, which said in part, they, the SEALs, up behind the bodies of four other people killed in the raid, a courier they had been tracking for years, his brother, one of Bin Laden's son, and an unidentified woman. Got that? Not only did the SEALs kill Bin Laden, they killed four people, including two family members and an unidentified woman. Did Vinograd's quit her job in protest? Did she go out to CNN and say all Americans are walking prime targets for retaliation because of what Obama has done and then boast about that on national television? No, of course not. But in fact, yes, indeed, there were just those kinds of calls for retaliation at the time of Bin Laden's death. Note this associated press story from the day that ran over Fox News, the headline, Al-Qaeda vows revenge for Osama Bin Laden's death. The AP story said this boldly print supplied. Akena vowed to keep fighting the United States and avenge the death of Osama bin Laden, which is acknowledged by the first time Friday in an Internet statement, apparently designated to convince followers that remain vigorous and intact even after his founder's demise. Al-Qaeda plots are usually large-scale and involve planning over several even years, but Western intelligence officials say they are seeing increased chatter, blah, 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 blah. USA, you will pay, Shannon, more than 100 participants in a pro-Bin Laden protest at the American NSBC London on Friday. So in other words, as an NSCA to Barack Obama, Vinograd's and not the slightest apparent disagreement about Obama sending Navy SEALs to kill the then number one terrorist today, killing four others, including two family members and a woman along the way. But now, not comfortable ensconced at CNN. Vinograd is suddenly horrified by Trump, a president Obamaites cannot abide, a president Trump who did exactly what Barack Obama did, send the U.S. military in the form of a drone to take out serious terrorist responsibility for the death, make the murders of hundreds of Americans. As Fox News noted here, hair-on-hair pundits' reaction to Soleimani killing illustrates partisan Trump coverage, experts say. What is really on display is the liberal media's reaction to the attack on General Soleimani is the same old, same old Trump derangement syndrome, double standard national security version, which is another way of saying that once again the liberal media is completely oblivious to the damage they're doing to their own credibility. I further in this article missed Barack Obama, who I supported wholly, for the record, smoked whole villages in western Pakistan. He droned a person and took out whole families, whole blocks. The media was silent. But now, because it's an election year, and because orange man bad, here's just a taste. These aren't even the bad ones of what the media did the moment this terrorist piece of fucking phlegm died. The Pentagon says its drone strike targeting Major General Qasem Soleimani was aimed at deterring future attacks by Iran. It's part of President Trump's so-called maximum pressure campaign against the Iranians. But there are fears that the killing of Soleimani, a revered figure in Iran and some other places in the Middle East, could see simmering tensions between the U.S. and Iran turn explosive.
But even many of Soleimani's enemies admitted he was a military genius. He spearheaded Iran's involvement in the Syrian civil war, helping to shore up the Syrian regime's grip on power. And in Iraq, ironically, he and his forces were on the same side as the US, fighting against ISIS. By killing Qasem Soleimani, the US has stripped Iran of an inspirational military leader. But it's also further inflamed dangerously high tensions. Iran has already vowed to take, quote, harsh revenge. This strike is fairly brazen, fairly audacious to a certain degree to be taking out someone of such significance at a time when there is such tension uh, in the region. But the issue is, was this a wise move and what are going to be the repercussions? And is the Trump administration ready for this escalating crisis with Iran? And so leaving aside the justice of the of the issue, the question is, was it a wise thing to do? We'll find out in the next few days. But, you know, given how haphazard that national security policymaking process is in this administration, you have to wonder. I think this crisis is really reflecting some of the contradictions of President Trump's foreign policy, which can be described as bellicose. Uh, isolationism. And, you know, he keeps talking about wanting to pull out of the Middle East, but also wanting to strike back and be a counterpuncher. And he's making threats and, and issuing ultimatums. And now you're seeing all of that come to a head right now, where this is a crisis that President Trump has really created between the U.S. and Iran, because although the U.S. and Iran have a long history of animosity dating back to 1979, relations had actually quieted down quite a bit. Uh, since President Obama concluded the Iranian nuclear deal in 2015. The U.S. right now, even though the president is saying this was meant to keep America uh, safer, is going to find itself in potentially a very vulnerable position. Again, it's not clear what the objective here. Soleimani is a bad guy. There's yeah. no question. But we appear to be, without, by the way, I'd say without congressional authorization, entering into another Middle East war. I am glad that Soleimani is dead, but typically in these situations, the cost-benefit analysis about an operation occurs months, if not years, before an operation is conducted. So I am deeply worried that he did not incorporate intelligence into planning this attack and thinking about the repercussions. Our breaking news tonight, President Trump ordering the Pentagon to launch an attack that killed a senior Iranian military official and a senior official in Iraq's paramilitary forces. The attack uh, happened at Baghdad's airport. Back with me, Jim Shudo. Jim, um, we've discussed uh, throughout the hour how this is an escalation uh, of this, this tension between the U.S. and Iran. Um, what does the, the next step potentially look like, war, if, if it comes with Iran? It, it won't look like uh, the Iraq War in 2003, the invasion, it won't look like the Gulf War in 1990. It may not look like any war conflict we've seen because it will not just take place on the battlefield. Uh, because Iran has enormous capabilities, which it's already demonstrated uh, in a number of fields. Uh, they can carry out terror attacks, whether in the region on soft targets or military targets. They can attack shipping. We've already seen that. They have enormous cyber capabilities. Uh, they're already attack us with a fair amount of regularity. You can expect more of that. So, so what's known as hybrid warfare, but a whole host of fronts with a whole host of technologies uh, that take aim at a whole host of targets. And, and, and keep in mind, not just military, Military targets, but the potential of diplomatic and civilian targets. Think U.S. embassies uh, in the region, but also economic targets as well. Uh, 
Soleimani, who was killed in this strike, uh, was the leader of a force that carries out and is expert at these kinds of attacks. And that's the kind of retaliation you can brace yourself for. Yeah, let's focus on Soleimani, because as we discussed tonight, that morally, no question that there had to be some justice for Soleimani. The question is, where does this fall in a broader conversation? Tell us more about, about what people who don't hear that name often don't know the context why this is such a a major development. There are hundreds of American families, many who might be watching tonight, who lost service members, sons and daughters, to attacks carried out by Soleimani and his Quds force in Iraq. Uh, 600 service members killed, thousands more wounded. Think of that. Mm. They're going to be watching this news very closely. That's the kind of person and leader he was. He's no longer on the battlefield. The question is, how does Iran respond? Jim Shudo, thanks so much. Stay with us for more live coverage of our breaking news. The Pentagon announces a top Iranian military official was killed in an airstrike by U.S. forces. With you, and get your reaction first to the killing of Qasem Soleimani. Well, this is a huge, uh, a huge move by the Trump administration. It is a game changer. Uh, Secretary Pompeo said that this was uh, in reaction to what he said was an imminent attack. And, you know, when a secretary of state speaks, you should be able to take that to the bank. And I sure hope that was the case here, because uh, if it isn't, if, if uh, there was not an imminent uh, threat, I think there are whole questions about how our government is, is acting, especially with respect to the Congress. But turning to the region, I think uh, we have to understand that Iraq has gone through a very difficult time, not just in the uh, past few years, but especially in the past few months. The militias have been stronger. They do have a real voice there, political voice. Uh, the, the militias had weakened uh, after you know, the period of 2008, 2009, but now they're very much back in force, and largely because of Qasem Soleimani's work with them and uh, equipping them and, and most importantly paying them. So I suspect the Iraqi uh, militias, putting aside the question of Iran, they are going to be kind of loaded for bear, and a uh, big question is whether the U.S. is going to be able to remain in in Iraq and in, in fighting ISIS. There's no question that Sunni Arab states uh, do not rule the day that this uh, this uh, Soleimani is gone. But I think there's a lot more complexity to that in a place like Iraq, which is some 60 percent uh, uh, Shia. So I think we're really going to have to fasten our seatbelts. You know, uh, Iran is not some little country run by warlords. It's a it's a mm-hmm. 4,000 year old state. They've got a <coughs> lot of organization there and a lot of power there. And I think we can definitely expect a reaction. And Ambassador Hill, speaking of complexities, here you have an Iranian national, a government official, killed in Iraq by a U.S. strike, apparently without Iraqi permission. So what kind of diplomatic quagmire does that create? That's a tough one because uh, already the Iraqis were pretty upset about the airstrikes, the airstrikes that were in response to the rocketing of the base in which uh, Iraqi troops were injured and one American contractor was killed, and yet the Iraqi government was uh, was upset about the reaction to that. This is, another, this is a whole other order of magnitude where someone comes in to the airport, well known to the Iraqi government, gets in a car with a bunch of Iraqi 
Rockies and starts heading into town, and then he's killed by Ameri- by American drone strike. I mean, this is enormous, and I think Iraqis who worry about their sovereignty, and this is one of the big reasons why President Obama ultimately decided he needs to withdraw the troops. Um, I think this is going to be very tough when the parliament sits uh, tomorrow, that is on Saturday, to consider what to do next. Doug, there's a, a potential for a proxy war here. Iran, as you know, could respond through its militias in Iraq and Syria. It's got Hezbollah in Lebanon. It's got friends in Yemen. The question in my mind, though, is does Iran want that kind of confrontation with the U.S. right now? Well, it would be interesting to see how they respond. You're right. There's a whole laundry list of ways that they could respond. You know, rockets from Lebanon into Israel, uh, attacking U.S. assets in Iraq, attacking Saudi oil infrastructure. They have a, a lot of, you know, cyber attacks against the United States. They have a lot of capabilities, a lot of ways they could respond. Uh, the question is, you know, what... What game do they see as going on here and what's most important? I think there's a, there's a two-level game going on. We have this U.S.-Iran confrontation, but this has really come to a head in Iraq, as Ambassador Hill was referring to. The pro-democracy, pro-accountability, anti-corruption, and pretty much anti-Iran demonstrations have been going on in Iraq for about 90 days. And it looked like Iran and their allies were about to lose power in Iraq. And many of us think that's why Iran decided to do the strike about a week ago to reset the calculus inside Iraq. Now, I think this is the real battle in the confrontation between Iran and the United States. What happens in Iraq in the next few days? Do they, as Ambassador Hill alluded to, have to do a vote now? Do they perceive that for self national pride reasons they have to eject U.S. troops because of this offense to their sovereignty? Mm-hmm. What does this mean for the pro-democracy demonstrators? What does this mean for, will there be a Western-leaning or Iranian-leaning prime minister uh, brought forward in Iraq? That's the real interesting battlefield, I think, that we need to be focused on. You know, one of the things that the ambassador said caught my ear. He says, when the Secretary of State speaks, you should be able to take that to the bank. What level of trust should the American people have in this administration, given its credibility gap, and given the fact, let's not forget, this country went to war in Iraq based on intelligence that was flat out wrong? You know, that's not a question that concerns me. You know, the question as to whether these attacks were justified, to me, is a, a non-issue. You know, Qasem Soleimani and Abu Mahdi Mohandas, the Iraqi militia figure who was with him, you know, is an equally serious uh, player removed from the game. If nothing else, they're responsible for the killing of 500 of these Iraqi demonstrators uh, in the last 90 days. You know, if we want something really recent in terms of statute of limitations, of course, we could go back a decade to the U.S. troops that were killed during the the Iraq war. So I'm not concerned about the justification. The question is, was this wise and prudent, even given so? You know, there are bad people doing human rights abuses all over the planet. Mm-hmm. Their deaths may be justified. That doesn't mean it's politically wise to do so. We'll see what happens in the coming days. I can craft a scenario where this works out really well for the United States. I can craft a scenario where this goes very poorly. Um, we'll have to see how that ambiguity gets resolved. Well, quickly, you talked about the potential asymmetric uh, response. How sophisticated is Iran's ability? It seems like there is no hotline to anyone in Iran now. No, and I think it's worth mentioning we are, of course, mindful of U.S. troops uh, in the field. But as the sun comes up in Iran and it is 7 a.m. there now, it is worth mentioning and is worth remembering that millions of people in Iran and in Syria and in Lebanon and in Israel are waking up this morning very, very scared in a region uh, that seems to be one step closer uh, to another war, Lawrence. I personally have no confidence...
that this particular commander in chief can do that. So we have like a guy who is driving down the highway, you know, at a hundred miles an hour going through the guardrails. He was going through guardrails here in the United States. Now he's going through guardrails internationally. And we do not know what the wreckage is going to be. Andrea Mitchell, uh, what are you looking at as the next stage of this story? Well, there's going to be a lot of uh, claiming of credit for this. The president with his flag tweet has certainly made this a U.S. versus Iran event, if it weren't already, from the claim of responsibility for this as a defensive act, they say. Interestingly, Israel had many opportunities to take Soleimani out and did not for fear of retaliation, for fear of what this, what a cultural figure he was throughout the Middle East. So I fear retaliation. And as others have suggested, at the time and place of Iran's choosing, which could even reach over the waters to the United States, um, grave concerns that there is no plan, that there's no policy, that this is another one-off act, um, perhaps well justified by Soleimani's career of, of murder and terrorism, but one that has not been well thought those tentacles that Iran had in the region were run by Qasem Soleimani. That he was dangerous is not a question. What do we know about this whole idea that he was planning something imminent on Americans? Well, all we have for that right now is the American account that has been put forward by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. He said there was an imminent attack. Interestingly enough, it's kind of evolved, the logic behind the American strike. Yesterday, the first reports came out, said that he was planning future attacks. It was somewhat ambiguous this morning. They were a little bit sharper in the language that they used, imminent attack. But the reality is uh, it, they're trying to meet a certain threshold for justification for carrying out this attack. Right. You know that in, uh, under international law and the U.N. Special Rapporteur on Extrajudicial Killings has made this very clear. You can't kill someone based on their past actions. You can really only kill someone if you know that you are going to neutralize an imminent threat coming from that person. So obviously today, the U.S. is putting that messaging out, saying, look, we had imminent concerns. He was about to kill more Americans or carry out an attack. They obviously haven't provided that evidence. It's interesting to see uh, and important to emphasize that it's hard to believe the American government on something like this without them, and especially this administration, without them putting forward some clear evidence, some clear intelligence that American lives were at stake, and they were only able to avert the loss of American lives by killing him. Deadly attack. The U.S. kills Iran's top general in a dramatic airstrike at Baghdad's airport under direct orders from President Trump. This morning, the entire region on edge. Iran vowing retaliation amid fears the two nations are on the brink of an all-out war. Oil prices already skyrocketing. Soleimani, an iconic military leader, led forces in Iraq, Syria, and throughout the Middle East. American officials believe he was responsible for the deaths of hundreds of American soldiers during the Iraq war, branding him a terrorist. Is it a new day for Americans overseas right now? Is this a more dangerous world we're waking up to? Unfortunately, it is, Lester. He is an evil man and a brilliant man. He was the Cardinal Richelieu. He was the Machiavelli. We are better for his chess piece coming off the chessboard. But that's tactics strategy, our strategy is going to put a lot of Americans... You're hearing. Well, what we're hearing and seeing is that tomorrow, frankly, is going to be a very, very tense day in Baghdad. Already preparations are underway to hold official funerals, official ceremonies 
for the two people, who, the two main figures who were killed in this American drone strike. Of course, Qasem Soleimani, the one we've been talking about, the Iranian general who led the external Iranian operations, led its relations with the militias, uh, a very important figure in Iran, and also the deputy head of the militias, the Shia militias in this country, they were together, they were in a convoy together, apparently they were in a vehicle together that was attacked, and that was the target of opportunity that U.S. intelligence had been tracking and, and, and carried out this attack. So, if you could uh, picture Baghdad, I, I can paint the scene for you, uh, it, can, it's, it potentially could be a, a very explosive and very dangerous situation, because in the middle of Baghdad, uh, you have what is still often called the Green Zone. Uh, that is the area where the U.S. Embassy is located. That is the area where quite a number of American forces are located, primarily protecting the embassy, but also with other missions. Around them, not very far away from them, are Shia neighborhoods that tomorrow are going to be out commemorating, com uh, celebrating the martyrdom of these two figures, and they're going to be blaming the United States, and they're going to be in quite close proximity. Uh, so there, there could be some, there could be some tension. There could be an, an escalation. Uh, we have, we've seen the, the Shiite leadership in this country calling for calm, but tomorrow, when you have this large number of people, and there are expected to be large crowds already, there are uh, uh, police setting up checkpoints. They're trying to organize what will effectively be a public mourning area uh, in Baghdad in close proximity to the embassy, uh, th there, could be, uh, there could be problems. Richard, can you unravel the relationship between Iraq and Iran? <laughs> uh, yes, I can try. Uh, in, in brief terms, it goes, you, have to, you have to look at the 2003 uh, Iraq war as a major turning point. Uh, for for hundreds of years, this country, Iraq, was ruled by a Sunni minority. Saddam Hussein was a, a Sunni. He was an authoritarian dictator. At times, he was pro-American. And he was primarily, however, concerned about his own rule, his own family rule. Uh, that dynamic changed completely when the United States entered Iraq had an occupation, in, uh, brought democracy, brought uh, the, the idea of one person, one vote. That opened the door to the Shiite majority in Iraq, about 60% of the population. Just across the border in Iran, you have a Shiite majority country. And it was Qasem Soleimani who saw this as, a, as an opportunity and who forged a very, very close relationship. He saw that Baghdad was in disarray. He saw that the Americans were bringing uh, one man, one vote uh, democratic uh, norms and procedures to Iraq and decided this was Iran's opportunity to set up military alliances, to set up political influences, and then set up these, uh, this network of very powerful Shia militias, the Shia militias that tomorrow, in close proximity to the, uh, to the green zone where the U.S. Embassy is, are going to be out on the streets mourning the deaths of one of their top commanders, the deputy head of all the Shia militias, yeah. and Qasem Soleimani. So I asked so, that. Uh, it, is a, it is a long relationship, yeah. but I would, I would watch uh, how it plays plays out. Oh, I asked that. And, and I know it's complicated. And I know I've asked you a very large question, which requires much more than just a few minutes. No, no, no. It's, um, it's, it's. But, but my, 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 what I'm getting at is, is the green zone, the protesters that were, that stormed the embassy, the protesters, quote unquote protesters, that stormed the embassy the other day were allowed to walk right in. Usually you can't just walk into the green zone. So I'm wondering how is, how is Iraq 
um, as a sovereign nation going to respond to America killing Qasem Soleimani on their soil and also killing the head of, uh, of one of their militia forces? Uh, is, it, is it more likely that they're going to side with Iran or is it more likely that they're going to side with the United States? The president obviously wants them to side with the United States. He's tweeted as such. But what's the reality on the ground? ...of uh, uncritical patriotism. But let's be, I think it, we should be clear here. One, we should exhibit a healthy dose of skepticism about what's coming out of the White House. They have been lying to us for three years straight. Um, and so I'm... There are people out there who would argue that, that administrations have been lying to us for a lot longer than that, especially when it comes right. into the Middle East. We just saw the Afghanistan papers and how military officials and administration officials across the board but have been Katie, telling us something when something else has been Katie, going on I, I think we could we could we could stipulate to that claim but we can still make a difference there's lying and then there's lying right so there's a way in which the lies of the of the trump administration have stood out because it's so daily in in some ways and also i, I just want to i just want us to step take a step back there's a kind of casualness that has attended our conversation around the assassination of general Suleiman. And this has nothing to do with trying to redeem his character. It has something to do with who we take ourselves to be. And I, I, as, as, uh, as an American citizen, as a person who wants to step back and think about what does it mean for the U.S. to engage in the assassination of a state actor, I want us to be very, very careful in how we talk about this. So, one, we need to be skeptical about their rationale for doing it. Two, we need to understand what it means for the American, an American, American government to engage in such, such action. Okay, I've got to push back. Okay, sure. hey, I think Soleimani is in Baghdad. He's not in Tehran. He's not in Iran. He is in Baghdad. He is directing uh, attacks on So show Americans. me the proof of what he was going to do that was imminent. Well, we show know what me. he did. We know what he did. We they know. said imminently he was going to... No, no, I'm not talking about that. Well, here's what happened over the last month. We had an, an Iranian, a Shiite-backed militia supported by Iran attack an American position, three Americans wounded, an American contractor killed. We had this uh, totally bogus um, attack on the U.S. Embassy following actual demonstrations in Iraq against Iran. There were hundreds of thousands of people in the streets of Iran protesting of Iraq protesting Iranian interference inside Iran, right. and you have the head of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, Soleimani, who is a terror that is a confirmed terrorist organization. The State Department, under Obama and and Trump, calls it a terrorist organization in Baghdad. He was not on his own soil. I mean, so the 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 idea that somehow there was no provocation. The Iranians have been testing us. For six months, they shot down a drone. Trump almost pulled off a military strike against them and pulled back at the last minute. They they shot holes in tanks. I'm not arguing any of that. I'm wondering. I'm wondering if, if going after the second in command in Iraq, if there was a plan to go after the second in command in Iraq, which would Iran. which I'm sorry yeah. in Iran, which would 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 be akin, people are saying, to going after our defense secretary. Something like that. Well, is if it you is want it to call our defense secretary a terrorist who is responsible there for There are the people death in the Middle East who would say that. They might and they can say whatever it is they want to say. Then there are the facts which are that they, you know, 500,000 people have died in Syria as a result of Iranian meddling and support for Bashar al-Assad in his civil war against his own people. Hundreds of thousands of civilians have died during the wars that we've been waging in the Middle what East. Is, okay, so, uh, that, I mean, if what you want to say is that we don't have the moral standing to strike somebody who is 
Not saying that. I am, but I am questioning the evidence. I'm 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 being skeptical of the evidence but because not, they haven't shown it to but, me. But the, and I'm being skeptical I'm because of the hangover that this country is under from 2003. Beth, Beth yeah. jump in. <laughs> I have a totally different uh, uh, point to make, and that is to your question to Eddie about who is who is supposed to support this. And, you know, hearkening back to 2016, I mean, you were there over and over again. One of the reasons that, uh, that Donald Trump sort of distinguished himself in that big Republican field was he was saying, done, we're done with this kind of foreign policy. We, let's get back, let's focus on our, our homeland, our roads and bridges, our people who are addicted to opioids. And you know what? That was a very, very appealing message to a lot of Trump voters because they're the ones, people from rural areas, people they're from They're the ones fighting those wars. They're the ones going to fight the wars. So I don't know that the base is really going to be that supportive of this. I mean, yes, he can sort of rouse up a crowd and say, USA, USA, when you've done something sort of, you know, macho and, and you know, at least in the short term has looked successful, but it very much contradicts sort of where he has stood in many ways. And, and, and that is the larger point that I was, that's the larger yeah. point I was getting to. And Ambassador, I want you to jump in on this as well. The president ran on this. He ran again. I, you know, I say it all the time that the media and Democrats are always on the wrong side. I say it all the time that they root for the opposition whenever there's a Republican president. But the amount of bootlicking on this guy... Once again, knowing he is directly responsible for the maiming, wounding, and killing of American soldiers in Iraq. He was the one pushing the IEDs. He was the one supporting them. He had people in western Afghanistan right when I was there. They were there. It's just unforgivable. And the Democrats who... Had no problem with Obama, Syria, Libya, smoke in Pakistan. They were brazen. Just brazen. Early, but I first want to address the issue of Iran. Last night, the United States conducted a military operation designed to kill Major General Qasim Soleimani, a notorious terrorist. No one should shed a tear over his death. The operation against Soleimani in Iraq was conducted, however, without specific authorization and any advance notification or consultation with Congress. I'm a member of the Gang of Eight, which is typically briefed in advance of operations of this level of significance. We were not. The lack of advance consultation and transparency with Congress was put in the Constitution, or the rather the need for advanced consultation and transparency with Congress was put in the Constitution for a reason. Because the lack of advanced consultation and transparency with Congress can lead to hasty and ill-considered decisions. When the security of the nation is at stake, decisions must not be made in a vacuum. The framers of the Constitution gave war powers to the legislature and made the executive the commander-in-chief for the precise reason of forcing the two branches of government to consult with one another when it came to matters of war and of peace. It is paramount for administrations to get an outside view to prevent groupthink and rash action, to be asked probing questions not from your inner and often insulated circle, but from others, particularly Congress, 
which forces an administration, before it acts, to answer very serious questions. The administration did not consult in this case, and I fear that those very serious questions have not been answered and may not be fully considered. Among those questions, what was the legal basis for conducting this operation? And how far does that legal basis extend? Iran has many dangerous surrogates in the region and a whole range of possible responses. Which responses do we expect? Which are most likely? Do we have plans to counter all of the possible responses? How effective will our counters be? What does this action mean for the long-term stability of Iraq and the trillions of dollars and thousands of American lives sacrificed there? How does the administration plan to manage an escalation of hostilities? And how does the administration plan to avoid a larger and potentially endless conflagration in the Middle East? These are questions that must be answered. It is my view that the President does not have the authority for a war with Iran. If he plans a large increase in troops and potential hostility over a longer time, the administration will require congressional approval and the approval of the American people. The President's decision may add to an already dangerous and difficult situation in the Middle East. The risk of a much longer military engagement in the Middle East is acute and immediate. This action may well have brought our nation closer to another endless war, exactly the kind of endless war the President promised he would not drag us into. As our citizens, and those of our allies evacuate Iraq and troops prepare for retaliatory action, Congress needs answers to these questions and others from the administration immediately. And the American people need answers as well. Unimpeachment. Mr. President, the Senate... I think it's really important for New Yorkers to understand that we are now potentially facing a threat that's different and greater than anything we have faced previously. Over the last 20 years, this city more than any other has suffered the results of terrorism. The terrorism inflicted upon us came from non-state actors, came from very dangerous terrorist movements and individuals. As of last night, we are dealing with a different reality. And I said it last night, we're in, at this point, a de facto state of war between the United States of America and Iran. None of us knows how this will play out. There's been a bunch of reporting um, over a period of years um, that the U.S. had previously assessed that it could be more dangerous to kill Qasem Soleimani, the head of the Quds Force in Iran, uh, than to allow him to live, even when U.S. forces did potentially have a shot at him. 
I just wanted to ask, there's a lot of discussion about that reporting now that this airstrike has happened and that Soleimani is dead. What's your, what can you tell us in a non-classified setting here about that reporting, whether it's accurate? And, and is there any reason that we should think that that calculation somehow changed before this airstrike? Well, to my knowledge, Rachel, uh, and certainly while I was national security advisor, the Obama administration was not presented with an opportunity by our intelligence community or by the U.S. military to strike Qasem Soleimani. Um, had we been presented with such an opportunity, what we would have done is weighed very carefully and very deliberately the risks versus the potential rewards. We would have assessed all of the ways in which uh, this could enhance our security and degrade our security. And I think uh, judging from what I know and from what we've, we're likely to see, I think that there's real reason to believe that in all likelihood the benefits will be outweighed by the risks. And uh, we also would have taken all sorts of time and effort to prepare to ensure that our personnel, diplomatic and military in the region, were maximally prep, uh, protected um, against the, the likelihood of Iranian retaliation. Chuck Schumer's such a hypocritical fuck. He was, before, he was for things before he was against them. Who gives a fuck what de Blasio thinks? But they keep pulling him on TV and tell me that doesn't say the media is liberal. And Susan writes, shut your cock trap. You're a fucking un-American piece of shit. But these weren't even the worst. We're going to go to a music break, and then we're going to come into the Twitterverse and the reactions from the media in print and Democrats. And these following, I call them the unforgivables, where our media bent over to make a hero out of a fucking terrorist who killed American soldiers. Well, you know, you heard uh, Secretary Pompeo say to John that the French are wrong. I mean, he categorically said that. Remember that um, some, you know, on the eve of the Iraq war, the U.S. invasion of Iraq in March of 2003, then President Chirac said the United States was going to open a can of worms and France did not go along with this action and wanted more time to figure out what exactly was the intelligence with the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And President Chirac was proved right. Um, I think the French have a, a huge history in that region. So do the British. So do many other people who not only have a history and a dipl diplomatic history, but also have people and personnel in the region. So that is going to be, uh, again, something to watch, because as everybody has said, it's unlikely that Iran would take on the United States in any effort at symmetrical warfare. It's, it's, it's very, very unlikely. It hasn't happened in the past. It's unlikely to happen now. But the asymmetrical, the ability to, 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 to lash out in many parts of that region is clear and present. And remember, Hassan Soleimani was at the height of his power when he was taken out. Unlike Osama bin Laden, who was a forgotten, you know, nothing burger, sort of hiding in a, you know, villa in Pakistan. But... It's not the person you take out. It's what they leave behind and the tentacles and who comes next. Al-Qaeda terrorism did not end with the sidelining of Osama bin Laden. ISIS has not ended with the killing of al-Baghdadi. So if you're trying to end whatever's happening, 
This is a major escalation, and we need to see what the plan is. The dramatic attack that killed Iran's most powerful security and intelligence official mm -hmm. comes as President Trump is facing both a Senate impeachment trial and a re-election campaign. I delved into the time machine, and we found a New York Times headline. This comes from December 17, 1998. This was during Bill Clinton's impeachment. This was during the House vote. We'll yeah. put that up. Hopefully we have it. There we go. There go. Impeachment vote in House delayed as Clinton launches Iraq airstrikes, citing military need to move swiftly. Now, Margaret, actually, you know, not, the, not to diminish the importance of the airstrikes in Iraq at the time, but that's nothing compared to the murder or the assassination uh, of General Soleimani. And this comes during the Senate impeachment trials. Caitlin, uh, th the fact that this was carried out is carrying out something that both former President George W. Bush and President Barack Obama uh, decided and opted not to do. We know that General Stanley McChrystal, who, who led JSOC from 2003 to 2008, revealed last year he had the opportunity to assassinate Soleimani in 2007 and decided not to. Talked about the importance of res restraint. So just speak to the impact of President Trump deciding to do this now. As out, you know, we find out hours before Mitch McConnell is going to go speak today about a pending Senate impeachment trial. Ryan was on property at the time. So those are the things we're still waiting to hear from the president himself, the justification mm -hmm. for this. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, he's getting praise from Republicans, but also a lot of criticism from Democrats and his critics. Mm -hmm. now, Sam, I had a former State Department official text me a few hours ago saying, I would not want to be in the Secretary of State's motorcade in any country going forward. Right. In other words, that U.S. officials now need to be concerned that they could be targeted. I've heard you mention that we now need to assume that U.S. service members stationed in many countries overseas might be considered fair game by Iran. What does this mean for the security of U.S. personnel stationed around the world? Well, John, it's not just service members. All American citizens are now walking prime targets for Iranian retaliation. The Department of Defense put out an important statement last night after this operation indicating what appears to be declassified intelligence that uh, Qasem Soleimani was uh, responsible for planning additional attacks uh, against Americans, but also that he approved the attack against the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. So it looks like uh, they were declassifying intelligence on that front, and going forward, we should really expect more of the same. The IRG Quds Force has demonstrated um, its willingness and intent to strike American citizens, to strike American diplomats who are afforded protections under international law. So in addition to the uh, force protection measures needed for American service members, mm -hmm. I am equally as focused on um, the American Diplomatic Corps, as well as all of the contractors that work for the U.S. government mm -hmm. and other American citizens, not just in the Middle East, but around the mm -hmm. world. Let's not forget that the IRGC uh, Quds Force has tried uh, to implement, implement terrorist plots in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, they tried to assassinate the Saudi ambassador just a few miles from where I'm sitting here. So they mm -hmm. clearly have global reach, and all Americans yeah. are a prime target. And she's right. It was, the, it was Soleimani that tried, you know, to pull off that assassination in 2011, mm -hmm. Jim, uh, right in Washington. Tonight, thousands more U.S. troops being deployed to the Middle East. Iran vowing revenge, angry protesters burning American flags. American citizens warned, get out of Iraq now. Qasem Soleimani was no ordinary general. The U.S. officially classified him as a terrorist, but in Iran, he was a national hero. Specifically, Soleimani was in charge of spreading Iranian influence around the world, and he was extremely good at it. Smart, charismatic, ruthless, strategic, and bold. 
old. Soleimani knit together a loyal network of armed groups. There was talk in Iran Soleimani might be a future president, or perhaps even a supreme leader. Today, the man who has that role, Iran's top ayatollah, visited Soleimani's family and promised severe revenge. Democrats demanding details about the strike, slammed by some as reckless, with concerns the president's overstepping his authority. The president's party largely united in praising the strike, arguing the world is less dangerous now after the death of the leader of an organization branded terrorists by the administration. Protests in Pakistan as crowds angry over Soleimani's killing burn mock U.S. coffins. The administration says the assassination was legal because it was defensive. If so, was it the right strategy? Critics say former Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama both had opportunities to kill Soleimani but did not, fearing it would lead to war with Iran. In Tehran today, the American flag burned in the streets. Angry reaction to the American assassination of Iran's top military commander. Soleimani was a cult figure. There's a real sense of shock here. State TV is commemorating him on a loop, and one general even wept after the news of his... Mr. Ambassador, thank you for your time tonight. Pleasure. With these uh, sudden developments, obviously, uh, the entire world is focused on this story. When you look at what happened here... Was this a declaration of war? In fact, it was uh, an act of war on the part of the United States against the Iranian people. Uh, the U.S. started an economic war against the Iranian people back in May uh, 2018 when, the pre when President Trump decided to uh, withdraw from the JCPOA, the nuclear deal, and started the maximum pressure policy against the Iranians uh, putting lots of economic pressure on, on Iran, uh, and they have continued uh, until today. Last night, they opened a new chapter in their uh, attack against the Iranians by assassinating uh, one of our most beloved uh, generals, who uh, is popular not only in Iran, but also in the countries in the region. So that was... Uh, as I said, a new chapter which is tantamount to uh, opening uh, uh, a war against Iran. So you say it's tantamount to opening a war against Iran. President Trump today said his words, we took action to stop a war. We did not take action to start a war. What do you say to President Trump? Mr. I, do not, I do not believe uh, that the U.S. took an action to stop a war because uh, the assassination of... Uh, the plan for the assassination of uh, General Soleimani was in the making for quite some time. John Bolton, the former uh, uh, national security advisor, tweeted last night that it was in the making. Uh, so it is not acceptable to, to uh, agree uh, to what the, what the administration is saying, that uh, they had enough evidence, as they put it. Uh, that General Soleimani was planning to attack uh, U.S. citizens. Because you say this had been in the works for the, quite this, some time. This has been for quite some time in the plan. So Secretary of State Pompeo on that front says uh, General Soleimani was plotting an imminent attack on Americans. That was his word, imminent. So can you categorically say Definite, that? Definitely it, it is rejected. Uh, if, if they have evidence, they should show it. They should provide the evidence. I'm sure that they do not have any evidence that can be proven in a court. So 
President Trump says he's not looking for regime change in Iran. He also said that today. Do you do you believe him on that? Obviously, John Bolton, the former national security advisor, said the opposite, as he has said many times before. But when President Trump says this is not about regime change, is he telling the truth? Uh, what, what matters is, is the U.S. deeds, not the, not the words. What, what they are doing against the Iranians are exactly to put lots of pressure on, on, on the Iranian people to stand up. Uh, and and that, is, that is in contravention of uh, U.S. obligations based on international law. So when you say tantamount to war, an act of war, uh, the words that you used, uh, Ambassador Ravanchi, uh, the Supreme Leader, uh, Leader of Iran today said, or vowed severe revenge, and his other words were a harsh retaliation to what he calls the criminals who perpetrated this attack, the Americans. So what does that mean if you're going to have revenge, retaliation to an act of war? Is that a war? As I said, the, the, the U.S. has already started a war against Iran, not only economic war, but, but something beyond that by uh, assassinating one of our top generals uh, who is being mourned by the people uh, in Iran and in the region. So we cannot just close our eyes to what happened last night. Uh, definitely there will be a revenge. There will be a harsh revenge. Uh, uh, Iran will, uh, will act uh, based on its own choosing. And the, the, the time, the place, uh, and uh, will be decided uh, by Iran. By so, so, so I want to ask you about that because when this happened last night, President Trump did not say that he was targeting someone else and General Soleimani happened to be there. He said it was him and we targeted him and we killed him. There were no proxies. There was no excuse making. Uh, he owned it. Will Iran's response be the same way? that Iran targets the United States? Um, I'm not uh, in a position to go uh, into the detail of what's going to happen uh, uh, when we are going to act in, uh, in revenge. Uh, but what I can tell you is that by targeting uh, one of our top generals uh, in contravention of uh, U.S. Uh, uh, international obligations, using uh, the airspace of an independent country, Iraq, a sovereign country, when uh, the president, I'm sorry, the, the prime minister of that country has condemned this act of aggression by the U.S., I mean, they should, uh, they should expect anything as a result of this, this aggression. So General Soleimani was one of the most powerful people in your country, as you have just referred to, Mr. Ambassador, and it's hard to over, overstate his influence for people to understand. Americans can understand, though, what the reaction would be if someone that influential were killed here or killed in another country, but someone who was, let's say, the, C the, the, the chief of the CIA, the defense secretary, or, or even a vice president. Does this death change the game completely between Iran and the United States? It has, uh, I can say, it has uh, given a blow to any attempt uh, that might be considered as, as a possible uh, uh, dialogue between the two uh, countries, it, it seems to us, and it is our belief, that this administration does not believe in dialogue. They want to uh, put lots of pressure on Iran to, uh, to agree to, to uh, American diktat. So uh, that, is, that is not accept acceptable to us. The way that they acted last night uh, showed once more that uh, this administration is, is uh, eager to use whatever uh, it takes uh, to uh, attack Iran, to put uh, pressure on the Iranian people. To the, to the definition of the word war, 
when you said it's an act of war, you also said that the war has been going on for quite some time, that it started with economic sanctions and the United States um, ending the Iranian nuclear deal. Is this going to become a different sort of war, a, a shooting war, for lack of a better word? As I said, the, the, the U.S. started the economic war uh, in, in May 2018. Last night, they started a military war by assassinating, uh, by an act of terror against one of our uh, top generals. So what else can be expected of Iran to do? We cannot just remain silent. We have to, we have to act and we will act. And, and, and you will have to act militarily. The response for a military action is a military action. I mean, uh, by whom, by, uh, you know, when, where, that is, that is uh, for the future to, uh, to, to witness. All right. Ambassador Avanchi, thank you very much for your time tonight. Thank you. Jeremy, let me ask you this. Uh, the president was tweeting a lot last night uh, saying we've got all these targets picked out that we're ready to hit in Iran should Iran respond. It, to me, almost sounds like the president is daring them to respond. What's your sense? Well, I think what he's doing is he's framing this as a, as a cultural war, as a religious war. We have 52 sites in Iran that we're going to take out. Now, now, I guarantee you, Harry, that the Pentagon does not think of this in that way. The intelligence community does not think of hitting cultural sites. First of all, it's a violation of the law of war. And second of all, there's no one list of sites. If we were to be in an all-out military conflict with Iran, there would be many more targets. But the president, in framing it as a cultural or religious war, I think is in flaming tensions. Chuck, guess what? Impeachment. No one's talked about impeachment, what, for two or three days now. Right. Well, look, it's, that's exactly, look, that is a fact, Harry. Uh, it is, this issue of Iran is overshadowing impeachment. Uh, and, and this is a reminder that the uncertainty, I think, that this Iran situation introduces to our politics with impeachment, with the presidential race, let alone our uncertainty with our security in the Middle East and our security here. So, uh, yes, this thing overshadows impeachment in a big way. Uh, and I think it only introduces more um, complicated politics for both parties. Next.
and addicted and it's been a while since I can say I love myself as well and it's been a while since I've gone and up just like I always do and it's been a while but all that seems to disappear Poking at the media bubble, one podcast at a time. Here's Tony Reed. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come on and fly with me. Let's fly, let's fly away. Good to have you with us. And uh, the president is to be congratulated, the administration uh, and the national security team in particular for uh, taking out uh, a man who was responsible for uh, hundreds and hundreds of American lives being lost in Iraq and and the spread of state-sponsored terrorism. Uh, from Iran. Uh, Your thoughts tonight, the mood in the White House and within the administration? Well, certainly it's it's a great day for our country because uh, because of the president's decisive actions, thousands more lives, American lives and other lives will be saved. You know, this man, this terrorist was brutal. And not only was he responsible for hundreds of deaths of Americans, but thousands of horrible injuries to Americans and others. And he wasn't going to start target stop targeting Americans. So that's something to think about. Um, the president you know, he knew there was imminent danger. We had good intel that there was imminent danger and that Americans were going to be killed. And so he took the bold and oftentimes hard uh, action that he had to as president, knowing that he was going to save lives and um, save lives then and in the future, too. And to hear the Democrats, or at least uh, many of them, uh, tell it, uh, this was a, 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 an imposition on a stable world order in the Middle East uh, that uh, only President Trump seems to be able to, uh, uh, to affect. I, I mean, it's outrageous what I've heard today in, uh, in, in the course of the morning uh, earlier from, from the Democratic leadership. I, it's as if they're completely unhinged. 
Well, they are. You know, I continue to be so disappointed by these Democrats. No matter what this president does, it is not good enough. The Democrats should be happy, along with the rest of this country, that American lives were saved. And instead, they're complaining that they weren't notified. You know, time is of the essence when things like this are going down. And the president does have constitutional authority to protect um, Americans um, when they are in danger. Uh, also, I would say that, you know, Schumer was complaining that he wasn't briefed. And then when he got briefed today, he was complaining that he, it wasn't good enough and, and he still had questions. They just continue Stephanie, to attack I think this president. Um, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I think Chuck Schumer was born complaining uh, <laughs> and I wouldn't expect any uh, uh, quick uh, change in his behavior. Uh, it is also, I think, a good case could be built. It would be utterly irrational of the uh, Trump administration to uh, to brief the very people who are trying to unseat him, uh, remove him from power, uh, to overthrow his presidency, uh, and who have done everything in their power to uh, to do so. Uh, I mean, I, I just can't understand why a neutral voice in this, uh, say, in the national media, uh, isn't saying, what are the Democrats talking about? And why would they expect anything other than uh, to be uh, found untrustworthy by the president of the United States? Well, I'm going to say because there is no neutral voice in the media right now. You know, the Washington Post talked about Soleimani as the most revered military leader. Again, we're, we're getting into, you know, he was a terrorist. He was a murderer. And we've, I've been watching cable news today. It was like they were hoping for retaliation. You know, they're like scaring the American public for ratings. I don't understand why, uh, again, the media and the Democrats aren't happy along with the rest of this country that our president took the bold action to kill a murderer. We should all be very proud yeah. today, and we should all be very happy that American lives were saved. No question about it. And uh, as uh, let, let's turn to us. How to get one positive in there. That's Lou Dobbs. And why would he brief? Why would you brief the Democrats? They just take it to the media and you wouldn't be able to accomplish it. But our unforgivables were Amanpour, who is a total fucking Islamist, just struggling with the death. Berman calling it a murder. Sam Vinograd, this before spoken about it, the we're all walking targets now. NBC News turning into a fucking infomercial. Zucker, state run TV. That was an Iraqi minister, Irani, Iranian minister, just softball questions like they're, I mean, they treated them better, a terrorist state. Then they treat Trump officials and NBC, of course, getting their religious war. We got to do the religious war. That's what we do. It's all a religious war. It's all about religion. Those bad fucking Christians, those sons of bitches. But it didn't get much better. Uh, Solana, this is from, uh, Elizabeth Warren, Soleimani was a murderous, evil terrorist who deserved to die, but some examples from Senator Elizabeth Warren, Soleimani was a murderer responsible for the deaths of thousands, including hundreds of Americans, but this reckless move escalates the situation with Iran and increases likelihood of more deaths in the Middle East. Our priority must be avoid another costly war. Josh Kroshauer, stunning that a simple mention of noting Soleimani was a terrorist is sparking blowback with the left. She walked back her statement. After Warren gets attacked by the left for noting Soleimani was a murderer and supporting increased DOD money, she comes back with new statement calling killing an assassination, only criticizing 
Trump policy. Because that's the left. Whenever you attack anybody, oh, no, 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 no. Can't have that. Joe Biden. Soleimani deserved to be brought to justice for his crimes against America troops and thousands of innocents throughout the region. He supported terror and sowed chaos. None of that negates the fact that this is hugely escalatory move and dangerous because Trump. Wendy Sherman, one-time Secretary of State for Political Affairs for Obama, said the Obama administration didn't go after Salami, Solanami, whatever the fuck, because they understood what the consequences were. There will be terrible, terrible reprisals that will likely happen in the Middle East, but they could happen really anywhere in the world. Perhaps the clearest example that Trump would be criticized no matter what comes Connecticut Senator Murphy. After violent protests by Iranian-backed militia U.S. Embassy in Iraq early in the week, Murphy blamed Trump for rendering America impotent in the Middle East. No one fears us. Days later, after a powerful show of force, Murphy was criticizing the president for killing a major enemy. Did America just assassinate without any congressional authorization the second most powerful person in Iran, knowing, knowingly setting off a potential massive regional war? Mm-hmm. Three days. Democrats media attacked Trump for killing terrorists responsible for killing U.S. soldiers. Um, here goes all the different things. Bernie Sanders. When I voted against the war in Iraq in 2002, I feared it would lead to greater destabilization of the reason. The fear, unfortunately, turned out to be true. The U.S. has lost approximately 4,500 brave troops. Tens of thousands have been wounded, and we've spent trillions. Trump's dangerous escalation brings us close to another disastrous war in the Middle East that costs countless lives and trillions more dollars. Trump promised to end the wars, but this action puts him in the path of a new one. Miriam Williamson. Prayers for peace. Killing a Kasami uh, of Qasam Soleimani by U.S. military is one of the most reckless, irresponsible actions ever directed by a president. Oh, really? Crystal ball, piece of shit. No one voted for this. No one authorized it. And yet there were, we are on the precipice of war. We assassinate Soleimani. It's hard to overstate just what a massive escalation and dangerous situation this president put us in. Andrew Yang. War with Iran is the last thing we need and not the will of the American people. We should be acting to de-escalate tensions and protect people in the region. Emma Vinegard. Imagine the Iranian government assassinated Mike Pompeo with a drone at the direction of the president and call it self-defense. That's exactly what the U.S. did by killing Soleimani. An act of war! The only difference is Iran's self-defense claims would be more legitimate. I responded to that and got like 30 retweets. Well, that would make sense of Pompeo was a terrorist. And you didn't care when Obama did it. CNN contributor Peter Beinart, Soleimani has lots of blood in his hands. So did Saddam Hussein, and assassinating him is the single most reckless act of American foreign policy. Far-left writer Raina Kahilek. Most Americans won't understand the gravity of this. Kasim Soleimani is head of the Iranian IRGC elite Quds Force, which conducts operations outside of Iran in both Iraq and Syria. It was credited with helping turn the tide in both countries against al-Qaeda. That is a lie. That's a fucking lie. Nancy Pelosi, American leader's highest priority is to protect American lives and interests, but we cannot put the lives of America's service member, diplomats, and others at risk by engaging in provocation and disproportionate action. The Trump administration is conduct strikes in Iraq, targeting high-level Iranian military officials and killing Iraqi Quds Force commander without a AUMF against Iran. Further, this action will take a consultation of the Congress. No, it 
doesn't. Seth Mantle. What on God's green earth is the world disproportionate doing in the nonsense oatmeal? Soleimani has a blood of upwards 600 American troops on his hand. How could Pelosi possibly think putting him in the ground, it, putting him in the ground is disproportionate? Kassam Soleimani's hands are drenched in American blood and in the blood of Middle Easterners. The disproportionate response was that he got under previous administration a free pass to kill. Yeah. Ryan Savandra, State Department. We cannot confirm that in the past. We can confirm that in the past several days, Soleimani had been traveling Middle East, courting further imminent large-scale attacks. Ben Shapiro, Team Obama overthrew Gaddafi, failed to protect our Benghazi embassy, lied about it, and withdrew. Then they tried to bribe the Iranian terrorist regime without any strings attached. Now they advance after Trump defended the Baghdad embassy and killed Soleimani. No. Ilian Omar, you know the terrorist herself would say something. So what if Trump wants war? No, knows this leads to war and needs a distraction. Real question is, will those with congressional authority step in and stop him? I know I will. We are outraged the president would assassinate a foreign official, possibly setting off another war with con- without congressional authorization and has zero plan to deal with the consequences. Mindy Robinson subs it up. Ah, was Soleimani a friend of yours? Another person. Reminder, you're talking about terrorists who killed U.S. citizens who were planning not only to kill more but attack our embassies and harm our allies. allies. Did you want Trump to send a fruit basket? Or a pallet of cash? Rashida, I'm a terrorist to leave. We cannot stay silent as this lawless president recklessly moves us closer to yet another unnecessary war that puts innocent lives at risk at home and across the globe. Congress alone has the authority to declare war, and we must reclaim our responsibility and say no to war with Iran. Somebody responded to her. Pen and phone, ring any bells? AOC. Last night, the president engaged what is widely being recognized as an act of war against Iran, one that now risks the lives of millions of people. Now is the moment to prevent war and protect innocent people. The question for many is how publicly, a congressionally, Ocasio-Cortez remarks come after the U.S. military, blah, 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 blah. Right now is the moment to decide if you are pro-peace or not. The cheerleaders of war removed from its true cause will gladly convince you that up and down, just as they did in Iraq in 03, but war does not establish peace. War does not create security. We all want peace, but, or if it's too late, a frame, a pro-peace agenda has native to real politics, somebody said. Don't give in to this gaslighting. The same folks selling us Iraq and selling us latest provocation of violence we cannot repeat this cycle. Congress now has a moral and legal obligation to reassert its powers. Then all the flax come in. Samantha Powers. A flag is not a strategy. Trump is surrounded by sycophants having fired those who dissented. He has purged Iran specialists. He's abolished NSC process to review contingencies. He seem as, he is seen as a liar around the world. This is likely to get very ugly really quick. I hope. She did not add, but she thinks it. Tommy Vitor, these assholes start a war with Iran and tweet out clip art. Ben Rhodes, what is the strategy? We have no explanation about what happens now and what we are trying to achieve in a very serious international crisis. Well, listen, little bus driver, book writer, because that's where you came up in the Obama administration. You gave them trillions in cash. What did it get us? 
or billions. What did it get us? James Hassan, the Obama folks staked their entire legacy on the idea that if we just played nice with Iran, they'd behave decently. Months after the Iran deal was signed, Iran took American sailor prisoners. All of this hysteria is solely about preserving their legacy, nothing else. Other responses, Libya, ISIS, Syria, cough, 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 hello. Sorry for your loss. After all the desertions Obama faced because of his catastrophic Syria policy, Frederick Hoff, Robert Ford, Ryan Crocker, General John Allen, Leon Panetta, and even Hillary Clinton broke with your boss over Syria, you stuck around. You might want to tone down the sycophant bit. And he's spot on. Then Rose McGowan, a libtard from Me Too. This sums up the left. Dear Iran, the USA has disrespected your country, your flag, your people. 52% of us humbly apologize. We want peace with your nation. We are being held hostage by a terrorist regime. We do not know how to escape. Please do not kill us. Hashtag Soleimani, which was a hashtag on Twitter, started by liberals that mourned his death. Our flag, a piece of shit. Iranian flag, to be respected. 52%? No, 50%. Terrorist regime. It doesn't matter you put facts out to them and tell them this guy was a bad guy. They don't get it. All they know is what the media feeds him, which is what I played. He was a brilliant man. He was a humble leader. He was a poet. He played guitar. He was a great guy who killed American soldiers, who these people don't care about. Remember, they only stopped with American soldiers or murderer because they knew it didn't work the first time. Or else you can goddamn guarantee vets coming back from an Iraq war would have had shit thrown on them, just like Vietnam all over again. People's responses to her. Hey, Rose, if Iran is so great, you should go hang out there in the exact outfit you're wearing in your profile pic and let us all know how it goes. Well-deserved ratio. I think this wins the dumbest tweet I've ever seen. Why don't we put you on a plane to Iran so you can go grovel to president in person? Good luck. You're a woman. So Iran just slaughtered 1,500 people in their own streets. Rose, if you think you're more oppressed than they are, hop on a plane and go find out. We do not know how to escape. Easy. Just leave. I can assure you, charmed one, you will not be missed. An Iranian. Dear Rose, I think you should know that most of us Iranians are happy that he's dead. Not long ago, Iran's government killed 1,500 innocent Iranians for protesting. Iran's government do not represent Iranian people. As much as I dislike him, Trump did the right thing. Dear Rose McGowan, you can escape the USA, you treasonous psycho, by immediately moving to Iran. Dear Rose, you have no idea what you're talking about. Remember who the people who were who backed you up when you came forward with your abuse account? Stop standing up for actual dictators who have murdered millions. Your hyperbole doesn't help. Another, try wearing that outfit in Iran. Another one, dear Rose, move to your beloved Iran. After a few months, come back and tell us how your move was. With love. USA citizen. And finally, dear Rose, this is what people of Iran think. 
You haven't noticed they have been protesting their leadership? Maybe you should check with them before speaking. Lisa Page as one of the top Twitter responds on this. Good riddance, but also God help us. My mother immigrated from Iran in her 20s to forgo a better life for herself. Iran is smart and strategic and all over the world. Iran is an irrational actor, but they have the pride of 5,000-year-old culture. I fear they're going to hit back in a way to remind America they are a real and independent country. I hope I'm wrong. Their 5,000-year-old culture is so rich and prideful that Lisa could not actually tweet this from Iran because of the censorship in her gender. I mean, just that itself blows my mind. How they treat women, yet all these libtard women just piled up with, oh, what a terrible thing, because we hate Orange Man. E-Man for peace, pray for peace. CNN is intentionally lying and claiming that Soleimani was an Iranian military leader. He was not. The official military is the Iranian army. Soleimani was a major general of the IRGC and commander of Quds Force, Mafia, of Ayatollahs, and globally designated terrorist. That's not what they're tweeting. While this was happening, CNN was reporting this. CNN says Trump had meatloaf ice cream when Soleimani News was broke. Article goes, what is it with liberal media losing their noodles about President Trump and food? Whether it was chocolate cake, ice cream, McDonald's, even salt pepper shakers, the press TDS has no bounds. So it was no surprise on Friday morning when the press wasted our time revealing the president had meatloaf and ice cream when news broke that a U.S. airstrike had taken out key Iranian military leaders and Quds Force head, uh, head Soleimani. CNN White House correspondent Caitlin Collins certainly thought it was worth publishing a 213-word blog post on CNN.com as part of their live update page on the death of Soleimani. President Trump dined on ice cream as news of airstrike broke. We are real news, Mr. President. Facts first. For the millionth time, journalists do not pick sides. Jim Acosta, Trump, we took action last night to stop a war. We did not take action to start a war. Now, not how the Iranians see it. That's his tweet. Because facts first. We are, we're rooting for Iran on this. Somebody retweeted, FDR, today is a day that will live in infamy. Not how the Japanese see it. And somebody tweeted him, the meme of the day. A picture of this piece of shit terrorist. And just like that, POTUS got the left to defend a mass murdering terrorist. And they did it. Who did? They were all on board defending this piece of shit. Ryan Kalik, a blue check journalist. The U.S. or Israel or whoever did it, we still don't know, assassinated Soleimani and PMF leader Abu Abdullah and shock is shocking. These guys defeated ISIS. Shock value is the equivalent of Iran taking out Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, and Captain America all in one. Yeah. Yeah, that's just stupid. CNN politics. They went to anybody they could get. UN rep. 
Soleimani killing was most likely unlawful. No, it wasn't. He's a designated terrorist. Washington Post. Breaking news. Airstrike at Baghdad Airport kills Iran's most revered military leader, Soleimani. Revered. Logan Hall. And you're going to hear all these. Austere religious scholar. Revered military leader. Washington Post sympathizes with terrorists. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, austere religious scholar. Do we remember? Jesus fucking Christ. Reacting News Thursday night, top Iranian blah, blah, blah. The Washington Post continued its streak of showing deep respect to Islamic terrorists, boasting of both headlines and push alert. Airstrike at Baghdad kills revered military leader. Authored by Missy Ryan and Dan Lamoth, the initial piece began with editor notes breaking. It was not clear who carried out the strike, but the death of Soleimani, the Iranian Quds Force commander, seemed certain to send tensions soaring between the United States. If confirmed by the U.S. military, it would mean that the head of the Quds Force was killed in a U.S. airstrike at Baghdad International Airport and served as yet another terrible blow to not only Iran, but Islamic terrorists throughout the Middle East that seek to harm the United States. Of course, this comes after the Post hailed now deceased ISIS leader Baghdadi as austere religious leader. The Associated Press was able to report this story without fluff. Here's an early dispatch posted roughly the same time. The Post alert. Iraqi TV, Iranian General Soleimani killed in Baghdad. But not to watch the post, because they root. They root. Soleimani, another one, posted memes antagonizing Trump on social media. That was another tweet. He just did it because he's a little man. And I believe WAPO has now won the 2020 dumbest take of the year only three days in. Austere religious poet, New York Times reporter, shares video of Soleimani reading poetry. Hours after it was confirmed that top Iranian General Soleimani was killed via a Trump-ordered airstrike, New York Times reporter Farnaz Fasali sought to humanize the deceased by posting a video of the terrorist reading poetry. Soleimani was murdered for the death of hundreds of Americans. Estimate 680, which is really low, was killed in an airstrike. Soleimani was the head of the Iranian-Iranian force, uh, backed force carrying out those operations killing American troops during the Iraq War. According to the State Department, 17% of the deaths of U.S. personnel in Iraq from 2003 to 2011 were orchestrated by Soleimani. Democrats and their allies in the mainstream media bizarrely reacted to the news of terrorist death by bashing Trump and at worst seeking to dehumanize Soleimani, as noted by the Daily Wire. One of the worst offenders was Fashad's video post of Soleimani reading poetry about friends departing and him being left behind. Rare personal video of General Soleimani's reading poetry shared by a source in Iran about friends departing him and being left behind. Her tweet. I'm not playing it, but it was like, oh, what a poor guy. Fasar was quickly ripped online for the post. Here are some of the reactions. A steer religious poet, responding conservative writer and podcaster Stephen Miller. Miller was referencing another mainstream media flub in October. The Washington Post announced the dead. We already gave her it. Uh, Soleimani, Peter Lloyd, of course you're a New York Times reporter. Hi, I'm a highway czar. Here's a rare personal video of Bashar al-Assad doing the ice bucket challenge meant to raise awareness for ALS. It's called reporting, folks. Jeff Dobbs, Boris Johnson reciting poetry. What a buffoon. 
Solomon recites poetry. The nuance and the emotional depth of his recital provides evidence of a deep and complicated soul. Sick. This is how members of the mainstream media mark the death of a brutal terrorist leader with blood of thousands of Americans. That was Charlie Kirk. Ariel Cohen, a New York Times reporter, bemoaning Soleimani's demise. This is why I say Fossey of the New York Times is an apologist for Iran regime, quoted tweet journalist Heshman Alvi. See her touching tweet about Soleimani, the man who commanded the killing of hundreds of thousands of innocent people across the Middle East. Seth Weathers, is this New York Times writer in charge of Iranian social media propaganda? Steve Nabi, New York Times reporter sharing romantic videos of Soleimani. No wonder the New York Times coverage of the U.S. embassy attack used Iraqi civil protesters as cover. Another, Ryan Savander. This man was terrorist who murdered hundreds of American soldiers, and this New York Times reporter is tweeting out video clips in an effort to humanize him. Harlan Hill, what the fuck? Farnaz Vasali. Folks attacking me for sharing this video. It's called reporting. It's not an endorsement or sympathy. I share whatever info I get for all to see. Another blue check journalist, Rukamini Kalamachi. Before I go back to the pool, let me just say the obvious. No one's trying to downplay Soleimani's crimes. The question is, why now? His whereabouts have been known before. His resume of killing by proxy is not a secret. Hard to decouple his killing from the impeachment saga. I've had a chance to check in with sources, including two U.S. officials who had an intelligent briefing about the strike on Soleimani. Here's what I've learned. According to them, the evidence suggests there was to be an imminent attack on America target is razor thin. Rich Grinnell. If they exist, you should never listen to your anonymous sources again. They don't. Nicholas Kristoff, New York Times. My national security doubts about the Somali killing are failing to persuade. So as a farm boy, let me offer a, a different analogy. Growing up, there was a wasp nest around our woodpile. I hated them, but I learned that rashly throwing rocks at wasp nest makes the problem worse. The entire world, including me, said, Hey, motherfucker, you had no problem with Obama smoking anybody. Time magazine once compared Soleimani to Lady Gaga and James Bond. To Middle Easterner, Shiites, he is James Bond, Erwin Rommel, and Lady Gaga rolled in one. Time's most influential list to begin with. They put a terrorist in it. 2017. New Yorker, Robin Wright. Was the assassination of Soleimani an act of war? It will certainly be read that way in Iran and across the Middle East. An epic turn of events in the world's most volatile region that may ensure Soleimani's influence even in death. My New Yorker analysis. This is how she described him. Soleimani, a flamboyant former construction worker, bodybuilder, with snowy white hair, a dapper beard, an arching salt and pepper eyebrow, gained notice during the eight years' war with Iraq in the 1980s. Somebody said they forgot to mention he was also a poet and told jokes. Chris Hayes, 
I guess the de-escalation of last night's airstrike wasn't enough to fully de-escalate and stop war, so today the U.S. has ordered another airstrike atop Iraqi military commanders to further de-escalate and stop even more war. Yeah. I, I, you, I'm not, I don't have to say a lot in this podcast. I just have to read this. It is like, it is like my term paper for my masters on military or on fucking the hate of the military, a media bias, Democrats root for the enemy every time. First one, and I got another one in a second, is Trump wagging the dog. And then, of course, instantly, and with clockwork, carried on NBC Local, hundreds, and you see five people. And on Twitter, they made a moment, got called out and pulled it off as no longer a moment. Protests broke out. You're woke, Annie. There will be mass protests against the war on Saturday across the U.S. Please find your city and protest against this immoral, dangerous war against Iran and Iraq. What fucking war? When Obama nuked fucking people, nobody had a problem. Whole villages in Pakistan. There was no war protest. Code Pink was on this one already. The White House carried on CNN, maybe 50 people. Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, San Francisco, Miami, Albuquerque, Arlington, Columbia, South Carolina, Lancaster, Austin, Texas, Boulder, Colorado, Birmingham, Alabama, Cleveland, Ohio, El Paso, Fort Wayne, Indiana, Ithaca, New York, Northampton, Portland, Maine. This was all organized online. Seattle, Minneapolis, Atlanta, New Haven, Portland, Maine, Pittsburgh, Denver, Boston, Philadelphia, Cleveland, El Paso, Fort Wayne, Ithaca, they repeated themselves, Santa Monica, State College, Nashville, small. D.D. Molesky, I am now protested every war I've been alive for, including Vietnam, but maybe it doesn't count in utero. I had friends die in Beirut, Desert Storm, 9-11, and missed out on having a father because of Vietnam. So protest, boycott, run for office, do what needs to be done. They already had graphics. No war on Iraq tomorrow, Saturday the 4th. Bring the troops home now. End colonial occupation. This picture was put up. On Twitter, and it's fake. It's from a previous protest, probably Iraq won. But they had that all over the place. No war with Iran rally speaker. Uh, these are all people overseas. Most of them Muslims. The left was so scared, Selective Service website falters over World War Three draft fears. That was also a fucking... Twitter moment, or Twitter hashtag. Here's some of the protest. So we're here, and uh, I'll admit... Not as many people as I was hoping for, but we're here to protest the war in Iran and to end the bombing in Iraq. So, you know.
It's starting. We're, we knew it was going to come. We have a Republican president. It's just a matter of time, there's going to be war protest. So by the time we get into fucking Sunday, AOC, this is a war crime. Threatening to target and kill innocent families, women, and children, which is what you're doing by targeting cultural sites, does not make you a tough guy. does not make you strategic. It makes you a monster. Ilian Omar, President of the United States, is threatening to commit war crime on Twitter. God help us all. My goodness, Ilian. Spin machine is really working on overtime this weekend. No, Congresswoman. There are no threats of war crimes under any international laws. To see examples of war crimes, look through Iran's history the last four decades. Then, Iranian media comes out in support of our Democratic betters. An unstable president in a way over his head, panicking with all his experienced advisors having quit, and only the sycophantic amateurs remaining, assassinating foreign leaders, announcing plans to bomb civilians, a nightmare, Senator Chris Murphy, Murphy said. It came after Trump warned Iran that a strike on any Americans or American assets in retaliation for the assassination of him would could include cultural sites. 
but deliberately targeting cultural sites or cultural heritage sites could amount to war crime under international law. They also gave a shout-out to AOC. Democratic Representative AOC also excoriated the president, tweeting, this is a war crime. If Iran's media is using you, you're probably on the wrong side. New York Times comes out with another wag the dog. The lead story of Saturday's New York Times framed conspiratorial Democratic doubts after the killing of Soleimani, who coordinated blah, 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 blah. After, uh, over the banner headline, Trump warns Iran as Atoyo, at, at Ayatollah's vow revenge, the lead story headline didn't emphasize the death of um but emphasized Democratic doubts and economic fears. Democrats questioned timing of strikes as oil prices surge and the stock market tumbles. Democrats also pressed questions about the attack's timing and whether it was meant to deflect attention for the president's expected impeachment trial this month. They said he risked suspicion that he was taking actions overseas to distract from his political troubles at home, as in the political movie Wag the Dog. Yeah, we're going with that. Witnesses in Iraq who watched the event said that only a handful of men carrying Iraqi flags had run, not danced. But the witness, this is about a video somebody did. They even broke that down. That Pompeo's tweet was right, but he described it wrong, and and that Iraq, Iraqis weren't dancing in the street. But then I go on Twitter and pull off what I pulled, which wasn't Pompeo's, and yeah, they were dancing in the street. So just some positives. Because, you know, just I don't have to rant this podcast. I just got to play it. That's what I tell you every podcast. This is what the left is. They coddle terrorists. The media will coddle terrorists. They'll take the other side every fucking time. NBC News will run. It's a religious war because they hate Christians. Chuck Todd was in there. Yeah. That's who they are. Razor, hail type. Folks clutching the pearls that Trump might be leading us to war were awfully quiet when Drony McPeace Prize dropped 26,000 bombs in 2016 and had military action in seven nations. Yeah. Educating liberals. Kasami Salami. I'm going to him say from now on. Fuck him, he's dead. Murdered his own citizens, directed Assad's genocide, murdered injured Americans, planned attacks on our embassy, was plotting to kill more Americans. Death is currently being celebrated by the citizens of Iraq and Syria. But liberals are defending him. David French. There's much to say about the potential strategic benefit and perils of tonight's decision. But make no mistake, separate congressional authority was not necessary. This was not a separate act of war in the constitutional sense. It's very important that Soleimani was killed in Iraq. Why? Because American troops are lawfully in Iraq. They are by congressional authorization and the permission of the Iraqi government. Moreover, they have the right of self-defense. And don't forget that we're introduced to Iraq by Obama administration. The present military operation, we're a continuation of military operations initiated by President Obama. And he goes on to break it down that because they were doing things against the Iraqi state in America, <laughs> your authorization, Dem, allows the president to continue to do it. And the fact that he's a U.N. terrorist. Ben Shapiro just to get this straight, according to Democrats, giving the Iranian terror regime access to hundreds of billions of dollars with no restrictions on terror use or ballistic missile testing was good, and killing the terrorists responsible for hundreds of Americans' deaths is bad. 
Barack Obama routinely droned terrorists abroad, including American citizens who presented far less of a threat to America than Soleimani. So spare me the hysterics about assassinations. And for the record, this wasn't assassination. Salami was a terrorist in the middle of planning more terrorist activity while in a foreign country. It's perfectly legal. Black female. Cambry Kawani Koa. Holy shit. America isn't just taking out one terrorist of Iran. We're picking them off like grapes tonight in strikes. Trump is bringing them to their knees like a boss. Jesse Kelly. If you've been to a VA hospital in recent years and seen a young man missing limbs, there's a reasonable chance Salami is responsible for it. He unquestionably an enemy of America, and I'm glad he's dead, and I'm bummed it was a quick death. Later on in an argument with, le- with liberals, he was responsible for the introduction of EFPs in Iraq defeating our armor while I was there in 2006 and 2007. Years ago, Nikki Haley, Salami was an arch-terrorist with American blood on his hands. His demise should be applauded by all who seek peace and justice. Proud of President Trump for doing the strong and right thing. And she retweeted her tweet where years ago she said who he was and that he was a terrorist. Dan Crenshaw, tonight's good night. Salami, the world's preeminent sponsor of terrorism, is now dead. He spent decades spreading death and destruction across the region, including engineering and providing IEDs to Shia militia in Iraq that were used to kill hundreds of Americans. Abu Mahadi al-Mahadis, the leader of Katib Hezbollah, an Iraqi militia, militia beholden to the Iranian Quds Force responsible for attacks against America, including the recent attack on U.S. Embassy, was also killed. The swift and decisive act by the president is welcome news, but before, but we should expect a response from the Iranian regime and or surrogates and their power declines at home and abroad. They will continue to lash out. Now is the time to come together as a country to confront Iranian aggression and defend the targets or the tenets of freedom, as we always have. This, this should be the first item of business when Congress can, reconvenes. We must unify and object, objective, unified and objective as we address the reality of the current situation and not look to blame others for the past. They won't. Tim Kennedy, this man responsible for the death of countless Americans, some of them my friends. You see a veteran walking around with prosthetic, this man might have had something to do with it. Iran is the world's number one state sponsor of terrorists. The world is safer with Salami dead. General replacing Salami was named terrorist entity by the Obama administration. Bragged U.S. troops have suffered more losses than Iran. To a theater near you soon, when he gets killed. Gary Kasparov. What is happening between our U.S. and Iran is a consequence of what I described in Winter is Coming, an aggressive dictatorship sense of impunity leading to crossing of one line too far. Note to liberals by aggressive dictatorship, he's talking about Iran. Deterrence is based on standing up against small aggressions in order to prevent big ones, when the price will be much higher. Many years of success led to Iran and Soleimani to feel invincible to attack a U.S. embassy, when, of course, a U.S. president had to respond. This is how appeasement kills. This is why inaction can be deadly choice. It raises the stakes, postpones the inevitable, and encourages aggressors to assume they can act with impunity until the eventual response is massive and destabilizing. Action 
has clear cost because it's the reality of the road taken, makes it politically unattractive. Inaction hopes to pass the dire consequences of blame to the successor, as has happened with Syria and Iran and the Obama administration. I wish Trump and the competent team capable of strategic planning and inspiring the trust of allies and fear of enemies. This is far from the case, but I can't criticize the killing of a mass-murdering terrorist mastermind and reminding his ilk they are not safe. We'll never know how many more innocent salami would have murdered or how many hundreds of thousands more refugees he'd have helped create. But don't pretend you know what is to come is worse than the world with such a person in it. And he's right. He's 100% right. So, moving on to general stuff. Andy Ngo. Tiffany Harris, who was charged and quickly released for allegedly committing violent hate crimes against Jewish women last week, has been arrested for the third time. Same charge. She must like the free debit cards, if you remember. The release with money and a burner phone. She's going to sell the phones on eBay. Another anti-Semitic incident under investigation. A man accused of spitting on women outside Queen's Yeshiva. And this week, numerous on Facebook, if you look, black youth walking up and hitting Hasidic Jews, which aren't reported. Daily Beast Michelson, confused by black leftist anti-Semitism, finds excuses. Jay Michelson calls the Daily Beast, also a CNN contributor, has advanced degree in Jewish thought, but that didn't stop him from sounding appallingly ignorant, finding excuses for black liberal anti-Semitism in a piece titled, What's Behind the New Wave of Anti-Semitic Hate? The suspect in the Monsey New York stabbing has some things in common with classic anti-Semitic conspiracists, but the difference between them may be more important. New York is reeling from the wave of anti-Semitic attacks. And speaking as a Jewish parent who lived in Brooklyn, I can tell you that it's terrifying. It's also confusing. The vast majority of anti-Semitic attacks in this country are carried out by right-wing whites. But most of the recent attacks are being carried out by people of color expressing very different grievances. Hate, yes, but what kind of hate? Theories similar to those on the right, and yet it is dangerous and misleading to grievances against Jews or unsurly landlords or agents of gentrification, and these are all the bullet points he's trying to make, was in part about Crown Heights riot of 91 was in part about city resources, housing, gentrification, policing, and political power, but also shot through with conspiracy theories and the blaming of Jews. Michelson downplayed Nation of Islam leader Farrakhan while conflating Trump election with hate crimes. There's no left-wing or African-American equivalent of Trump who has frankly or freely traded in anti-Semitic stereotypes. Notorious anti-Semitic Louis Farrakhan may be the leader of Nation of Islam, but Trump is the leader of free world. There's simply no comparison between right-wing anti-Semitism, which arguably stretches into the White House itself. And the fringe sex, street violence, and bigotry found among small segments of African-American community. It cannot be a coincidence that the rise in anti-Semitic coincides with the rise in Trumpism, he concluded. But to eradicate anti-Semitism, we must understand it. And right now, when it comes to this devastating new wave of attack, we don't. Oh, okay. Okay. This is what liberals do. It's okay for us. It's not okay for you. And as we're talking about terrorism, 
What people forget every day it's happening, we are just good enough that we have a law enforcement agency who are all white supremacists lynching black people and beating gay people or whatever the fuck the left's saying today that are thwarting these attacks because this is just one another incident. Terrorist Knifeman, 22, wears a fake explosive vest and shouting Ali Akbar is shot dead in Paris after stabbing three people and killing 56-year-old man who was trying to protect his wife. We just had one on the London Bridge a while back. Because liberal policies over there have made it this. Muslim population of England passes the 3 million mark for the first time as the number of Christians continues to decline, figures reveal. Yeah. The more you bring in, the more problem you have. And that's how we got Ilian Omar. Obama goes, we got to take care of my people. And he brought them in, and now they run Minnesota and hate America. Fucking idiots. Here's some more media hate of the GOP. What is your response to the fact that she is saying 181 women, I believe, are running in 2020, uh, and whether or not they are actually reflective of the diversity of women across the country? Right. Well, I think she might want to wait till the votes are in in November before she starts bragging about it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> at the moment, uh, there are more wi- uh, Democratic women running for um, Congress and other offices than there are Republican women. And Republicans um, in 2018, Republican women had a 3% win rate. A lot of those races are lean Democrats. Some are toss-up. Sure, there may be some additional Republican women in the House in um, 2018. I don't think we're going to see double digits. But what I really think the issue is that if Republican women are, their best hope for them is if Trump loses in 2020. That gives them the opportunity to pivot and rebuild. But given Trump's unpopularity Mm -hmm. with women, if he wins, the future looks very, very bleak for Republican women going forward. All right. Well, lucky for us, we have a Republican woman here on set. So we are going to pose that question to you first off the bat. I mean, as a Republican woman um, who is not a supporter, not a fan of President Trump, where do you see yourself today? Um, abandoned by my party because they are falling lockstep behind President Trump. And that's the biggest problem and the biggest turnoff for Republican women to run for office, as well as Republican women voters. Now, this isn't the first time we've seen this. I've been doing this for 30 years. Back in the late 90s, we saw some women being elected, Republican women being elected um, through the late 90s, early 2000s. When President Bush ran for re-election in 2004 is really when we started seeing a major turn. Republican women became much more independent. They turned against the Republican Party. So, Yeah, the best way to save America are white women, because that's they really care about them on the MSDNC, is to the, get rid of Trump. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes no fucking sense. Eli Mistel is our next libtard. In some personal news, Tuesday was my last full-time day at Alt-Blog. Above the law. He writes, 
But I will be leaving the day today's safety above the law because, well, Brett Kavanaugh broke me. Sitting here and watching an alleged attempted rapist get installed in the Supreme Court with the shocking support of most of the elite legal institution, at least initially, while most of the mainstream media missed all the other way the man is unfit to judge even the Rose Bowl parade, did something to my brain. I was in on a sordid dishonesty of Kavanaugh from the day he was announced as Anthony Kennedy's replacement. I understood that, like Trump, Kavanaugh is not a cause so much as he is a symptom. In this case, a symptom of the Federalist Society wholesale reduction of judicial credential to Republicans win always. A reply. I'll be leaving the day-to-day safety above the law because Brett Kavanaugh broke me. I love how he links to another article about all the other reasons he shouldn't have been nominated, and it's the same spurious accusation from high school. I think this guy might not be a good writer. But really think about that. Kavanaugh broke me. He literally said, Kavanaugh broke me. That's why I'm quitting my job. It pairs really good <clears throat> with this in in these times on the heels of what we just listened to, the media rooting for a fucking terrorist because they hate Trump. Melanie Zanona, a number of GOP congressional offices have received the following Christmas card. I confirmed its authenticity with Hustler, which told me the card was sent by Hustler and was our official holiday card for 2019. From all of us at Hustler, Merry Christmas. Trump laying on the ground, a cartoon of Trump, bleeding. I just shot Donald Trump on Fifth Avenue and no one arrested me. How did that not make the papers? Why is there no news source talking about that violent rhetoric? Hmm. Ben Dominish brings us to a little bit of impeachment. I'm ignoring it till the Senate gets in, but here's some stuff. Gallup today tells us opposition to impeachment and removal is now upside down. 50 to 46. Here's a simple question for major centrist media organization. How many of your opinion writers are in that 50%? Do you have any? Should you? Thanks to the IG report and the FISA court statement... We know that Nuna's memo is overwhelming vindicated and the claims of Comey at all were wrong. Do you have anyone on the staff who wrote that at the time? Should you? On the critical question of what Americans believe on impeachment, Mueller, Brett Kavanaugh, and more, you think centrist media orgs would want voices that represent what the other half thinks. You might think that, but you'd be wrong. They don't have anybody. Another poll from Zogby. Two-thirds of voters think Dems more interested in impeachment than passing legislation. A majority of Dems agree. 53% of them do. Another one. Trump's job approval. White men, 54. White women, 42. Hispanic men, 37. Hispanic women, 23. Black men, 15. Black women, 3%. Bush got reelected with 40% Latino. And there's another article circling 
that a black opinion maker says he'll get 20% of the black male vote. Which is a shit ton. Then you got Alyssa Milano that I would put inside like the tweet of the day if I was doing that today. Plan to remove Trump that only takes seven minutes. Alyssa Milano, I need your help manifesting a change of guard in Washington. For seven minutes a day, I'll be chanting the following mantra. Believe in believing. The impossible is possible. As I do this, I'll be thinking of the special world we want to create. Join me. We're stronger together. This is what I'm going to do starting tomorrow morning. Join me. Upon waking, lay in Shavana. Looking up. I guess that's a pose. Set your alarm for seven minutes. Say this mantra. Believe is believing. The impossible is possible. And then out loud say, we like to create a changing of the guard. Fellow snowflakes, listen to me careful. I'm angry. This is another tweet. If he thought Greta Thunberg was angry, he's never seen nothing yet. I'm angry. And do you know why I'm so angry? I'm angry because I'm so tired. I'm tired of this. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not tired of fighting Donald Trump in his many, many impeachable offenses. I'm not tired of speaking truth to power. I will never tire of that. But I'm so tired of being lied to by a president. And I'm tired that the entire Republican Party thinks that we are all stupid. Yeah, I'm not going to do that mantra. Then you have this, which somehow doesn't surprise me with the impeachment. Right into it. Yeah, they really have. And uh, I think Nancy Pelosi's instincts were correct about a year ago when she was kind of uh, backing off. We don't want to really get going on this thing. But uh, as Matt said, the Venezuelan side of the Democrat Party in Congress said, look, no, we got to have it. And she had to cut a deal to become speaker because it was so, such a close race. She has taken the, the bull by the horns here, and uh, it looks like she's going to get gored because of it. Uh, the reality is this has been a huge mistake for the Democrats. They have nothing. There are people within the Democratic conference itself that re- realize that they have nothing, and it's done nothing but help President Trump solidify his position with uh, you know, people of reason throughout the country. Congressman, those within the Democratic Party, you just referenced them, are they angry about what Pelosi and Schiff and Nadler have done? I think some of them are. Some of them who I've talked to uh, quietly uh, aside, uh, they want this to go away. They wish it had never happened. But but you know what? Nancy Pelosi's got them because she raises money for them. But the reality is many of them wish this thing would go away and uh, but it's not going to go away, and no. she's—it's actually going to blow up even more. I'm afraid it, it's for them. And it's not just—it's no not just that Nancy Pelosi raises money for her caucus. It's that they use that money as a political weapon against anyone exactly. who potentially would vote against impeachment. Andy and I observed active threats on the House floor that <laughs> if the blue dog Democrats didn't go along with the radical left of the Democratic Party and support impeachment, that they would not be supported by the DCCC. So that's the active threat. We that's will, the quid pro we're quo. We're going to pull the rug out from under you financially and in every other way. Yeah, the only quid pro quo I observed yeah. in this impeachment process was the quid pro quo where if the Democrats didn't line up behind Nancy Pelosi as lemmings ready to go off the cliff, that they would then be bludgeoned by their own party in primaries. Huh. Well, it may turn yeah. out to be just yeah. the opposite. Uh, Congressman Biggs, if Nancy Pelosi thought that the mere word impeachment and the vote 
uh, that ensued would damage the president politically. The opposite has happened here. I mentioned the poll numbers, and now the Gallup poll comes out, Mm -hmm. and, you know, he's tied with Obama as the most admired man. I mean, talk about a severe boomerang. Yeah, I don't think they could have, have uh, understood that that might happen to him. I think I thought she knew, knew at the beginning, but look, that admi- most admired person poll. There's a lot of takeaways there. First of all, um, it means there's a lot of people who approve of the job President Trump's doing as president. But moreover, there's a lot of people who admire him personally for trying to keep his promises when he is in the swamp. When he said he's going to drain the swamp, we've seen, and I think the the whole world has seen how hard the swamp will try to take you back down. And then I guess the other thing is you can see how divided the country really is. That Obama and President Trump would be tied uh, as the most admired men in the 2019 is a remarkable statement that our country is divided in so many ways. But uh, I think it also gets to the point you just made, Greg, that, and Matt's been making this point all along as well. This is boomeranging on them. And it's actually solidifying and lifting President Trump up even more. Part of the theory that Nancy Pelosi is hanging on to these articles of impeachment, not transmitting them to the U.S. Senate, is she wants to prolong this impeachment notion as as long as she possibly can, hang it over his head. But if it's not working for her and it's having the reverse effect, doesn't she want to walk that over, run it over to the U.S. Senate right now and get it over with? It's more like a hot potato than something you would want to hold on and hope that it would hatch. And I don't always agree with Mitch McConnell, but I think he made a valid point that you don't gain much leverage in threatening to withhold something that the Senate does not want. And as Andy pointed out, you've got a lot of these members in districts that were won by Donald Trump who will vote for impeachment, but who frankly want it through the legislative digestive system as fast as possible. Because, I mean, if you're one of those candidates on the campaign trail, heck, if you're one of the 2020 Democrats running for president, this has now become all-consuming. The election would be a referendum on impeachment, and right now it would be an election that the president would overwhelmingly win in the Electoral College. By a fairly wide margin, Congressman Biggs, independents are against removing the president via impeachment. That just doesn't surprise me. It just doesn't surprise me. The whole thing, you know... They took Democrats in a corner and fucking whooped them. I don't give a fuck that you're in a Trump fucking district. You're going to do this. Julie Ihoff. Oh, wait a minute. Let me do this one. New York governor can't stand Trump so much that he blocks non-controversial bipartisan marriage bill. All through all of these little incidents we're having, you keep hearing Cuomo's, de Blasio, I, I don't understand why, but they keep showing up on TV, and I, I I just don't understand for the left. Why would you bring such partisan people? Let's do a quick music break, and then we'll come in and finish up the show. Um, I had a whole section on um, college crazy, gay shit, stuff like that, but this show is so long, I'm going to do another show uh, probably Thursday, and it'll be a news and social media nugget one because there's just so much. I, I'm looking at the time now. We're well over two hours of recording. I don't want to overload you and give you a four-hour podcast because there was just these sound bites I just had to play. You have to hear this shit because this is what we're talking about. Every time 
you you have to hear the full soundbite. I could do like people do and just snip, but the whole context of the salami killing, the left and the media were just crushed. I mean, we'll talk about it when we close out, but it's beyond rooting. It's almost... They're so political, they don't understand what they're doing. I think that's what I'm trying to say. They're so political. They look at everything in the form of politics. And anything good, we have to be against, even if it makes us root for a terrorist. I mean, that's just scary. So we'll do a music break, and we're going to come into Julia. Oh, I'm going to play a random soundbite. I have so many soundbites that I haven't played. Um, I'll play... uh, Nancy Pelosi, you know, Nancy Pelosi get confronted at a San Francisco 49er game. And yeah, this would never make the media. But if she had an R behind her name, it would.
Welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast with Tony Reed. I just wanted to tell you, I don't like what you're doing in California. I know that doesn't seem very earth-shattering, but I played it because that's how a conservative approaches a person. I don't like the way you're doing something. Not you, motherfucker, none of that shit. When, really, they deserve more ire. Here is a representative running for office in Maryland. Listen, he's a white guy, but listen to this. I saw a thing in that said a lot of men, white men, were committing suicide. And I almost thought, yeah, great. (laughs) (laughs) And then I thought about it a little more, and I thought, well, maybe you shouldn't say that in public. (laughs) Good. White men are dying. Yeah. That's what they have to do to get elected. That, that's what they have to do now. I mean, there was a soundbite actually was going to play where they're literally saying the only reason why they're putting up white people is because America's racist. Barack Obama won with a plurality twice. What the fuck, dude? Then we got Mrs. Christmas, Julia Ihoff. Remember, she was last year. Don't say Merry Christmas to me. I'm Jewish. You're a piece of shit. Yeah, do we remember that? This is her about ID laws, and, and I think this is what really captures the left. We have laws for purpose. There's there's reason we have laws, and we just don't give out ID. This is a very dangerous world, whether you want to admit it or not, whether you want to coddle up to salami motherfuckers who are killing people, it's dangerous. So we need to have real identification. I took my son on his birthday, January 2nd, to get his driver's license renewed. Took 15 minutes. Because he did it right the first time. But this is her screed to virtue signal because she's a white Jewish lady. Hello from the DC DMV, where after presenting my documents, passports, birth certificate, social security card, copy of my parents' naturalization certificate, officials have refused to issue me an ID under the new regulation of the Real ID Act. I'm an educated person who has the privilege of being able to take time off of work to spend hours dealing with this and who has all my documents. If I'm having this much trouble, then then what happens to people who can't take off work, don't have the originals of all their documents? But then again, that's the obvious point. But then we find out that the reason she didn't get a real ID card is that, surprise, her documents really aren't in order, despite her being an educated person and all. First up, her Social Security card has a typo, and this is one of the three main reasons you need to prove it's accurate. People are asking, so let me clarify. I present more documents than necessary, but they were rendered invalid by the DC DMV supervisor. My Social Security card didn't count because in 1990, someone spelled with a Y on it, not a J. My birth certificate didn't count because it's from another country. That may be a document in Russia or whatever it is your form, but the notarized translation of it was rendered invalid. Notarized copy of my parents' naturalization certificates don't count because, 
And then despite the website saying you need originals of everything, she just brought copies of her parents, which you can't do. It's not an original, but why would I, an adult, carry around the original of my parents' naturalization certificates? It's not my naturalization certificate, but I was a minor when my parents were naturalized, so I was automatically naturalized, and the U.S. doesn't. Her valent passport did count, which should be fulfill the real ID proof of identity, full legal name, date of birth, and law, press, lawful presence requirement, and made the birth certificate and naturalization paper a non-issue. Hand out naturalization documents to minors and other passports. My passport, which the DC DMV supervisor tried hard to find a problem with but couldn't, I shudder to think what happens when my passport expires. How under these regulations could I prove who I am? Well, maybe if they brought in the proper documents and not copies, as well as a social security card that matched those documents, would that work? How can anyone not born in the United States? Which, again, is very obvious, the design of these new regulations. Well, hopefully the proof of residence docs were on the list. I brought four proofs of residency, but they should wouldn't even look at those. FWIW, I was able to obtain a real ID at the Florham DMV in about 30 minutes, and that included 22 minutes of wait time in line. But I, A, made an appointment, B, brought the correct documents, so that might account for my different experience. This is them continually trying to make that it's a burden for people of color to have to do what everybody else does. Prove who you are. Tennessee went through this. I took my dry, I took my fucking notarized birth certificate, military ID, driver's license from South Kakalaki. Took me 30 minutes. I was done. Wasn't that big a deal. Then from Sean in Oregon. Oregon's in on the fucking craziness. Governor signs bill to change the way the Oregon helps choose a president. Oregon's electoral college votes could potentially be awarded to a presidential candidate who doesn't get the most votes in Oregon. That's because of a bill signed in law Wednesday by Democratic Governor Kate Brown. Her signature on Senate Bill 870 means Oregon is now the 15th state, along with the District of Columbia, that has joined the National Popular Vote Compact. The compact is an agreement to award the state's electoral college votes to the president candidate who receives the most votes nationwide, regardless of whether that candidate won in the state. I think it's really important to be part of the national conversation regarding the presidential election. I think it will encourage candidates to spend more time in states like ours, speaking directly to our voters. The compact will only take effect when enough states have joined the collective award, a majority of votes in the Electoral College. The threshold to reach that majority is 270. Oregon's decision to join adds seven Electoral College votes to the agreement. According to the National Popular Vote Organization, that means jurisdiction representing 196 Electoral College votes have joined the compact so far. Barry Fadden, president of the California-based nonprofit that has been lobbying states, attended the bill signing ceremony in Oregon. We have a road to 270, and we think it's possible that this would be in place for the 2024 election. There's a way it could happen for 2020, but it's unlikely. Supporters have been trying to convince Oregon lawmakers for more than a decade to join the compact. This year's bill passed with the help of two Republican votes in the Senate. The Oregon bill was along party lines. Opponents said the compact is an underhanded way to circumvent the United States Constitution, which established the Electoral College. They are not doing it so candidates will visit states. They are betting on demographics. The extra 4 million people that live in California that will always vote Democrats so that we always have a Democrat and president. Next will be 
to appeal the amendment to restrict presidents to only two terms. That'll come next. They're moving towards a socialistic state. That's what they want. Then this came up late yesterday. Two Delaware GOP leaders are facing backlash over homophobic and anti-Semitic comments. For the record, there are more articles on this on fucking Twitter, on CNN, MSNBC, NBC, CBS, and ABC than blackface Virginia governor. To prove my point that the media is a liberal piece of shit. Two Republican Party leaders in Delaware are facing backlash for comments on Facebook that their colleagues called homophobic and anti-Semitic. Newcastle County Republican Party Chairman Chris Rowe is resigning at the request of party leaders after he used a derogatory term for a gay man in a Facebook post. His comment was offensive and did not reflect the values of respect and tolerance held by the Delaware Republican Party. Jane Brady, chair of the Delaware Republican Party, said a statement. Ultimately, as a result, he lost the support of those he was to lead. Sussex County Vice Chair Nellie Jordan was criticized for an anti-Semitic Facebook post in which he denounced impeachment by signing, singling out Jewish people and claiming those who support impeaching Donald Trump are Jews in name only. They left out that she's Jewish, but that's okay. The remarks made Nellie Jordan, who was elected by her post by Sussex County GOP Executive Committee, were offensive, hurtful, and anti-Semitic, Brady said in a statement. Because Jordan was elected to her post by Sussex County GOP Executive Committee rather than appointed, she would either have to resign on her own or go through a process. She should remove her, Brady said. Roe was appointed to the position. Jordan does not appear to have addressed her comments or resulting backlash publicly. CNN has emailed the Sussex County GOP and Jordan for comment but did not receive response. Roe told CNN that he would be publishing a response within 24 hours along with his resignation. The two have not yet publicly apologized. These are two local people that they chased down, doxxed, emailed, and were on the case. But we've yet to have any blowback for Democrats doing blackface. Hmm. Salon put up this huge study. No fake news. Major study finds no liberal bias in the media. But there are other problems. In a way, that's not that surprising. Journalists place a high value on objectivity and balance. Avoiding ideological bias rates very high among journalists. Lead author Hans Hassel of Florida State told Salon. 8.5 on scale of 10 in the survey these researchers conducted. As Hassel acknowledged, the response you give to a survey may be very different from the actual behavior that you express the things to do. The report caused, I can't resist. They, these are tough times for independent journalism. If you value Salon's original reporting and commentary, we urge you to support it. Give us money. Complaints about the press bias are old as the press itself, but in recent decades, conservatives have pushed one complaint above all other. The media is biased against them because it's overwhelmingly staffed by liberal journalists. A new study forthcoming in Science Advances provides the strongest evidence ever that they're half right, but only the least important half. Yes, reporters overall are significantly more liberal than the general population. In fact, almost one in six are more liberal than AOC. But no, it doesn't matter. Even the most liberal cohort of them, the title of the study says it all. There is no liberal media bias in the news political journalists choose to cover. (laughs) 
Even though journalists are dominantly liberal and often fall far to the left Americans, the paper itself is emphatically clear in its conclusion. In short, despite being dominantly liberal Democrats, journalists do, do not seem to be exhibiting liberal media bias or conservative media bias in what they choose to cover. This null is v- vitally important, showing that overall journalists do not display political gatekeeping bias in the stories they choose to cover. Yeah. They used a, cr- a fake legislative branch and said that was it. As, as can be seen, there is no statistical or substantive difference in the probability of a journalist responding to the email based solely on the treatment condition. They used, like, fake emails, and that's how they did their study. These findings are all more striking given how liberal journalists as a whole were found to be. First, the authors conducted an extensive survey aiming a list of just over 13,500 journalists with working email addresses. We got about 13% response. This is not scientific. In there, reporters and editors are often a tricky spot. Sometimes they lack the knowledge and vocabulary in the dynamic field. This can be particularly challenging when political figures or their prominent supporters are profoundly motivated by the religious views. He cited the example of the 2020 Republican primary, the early stages of which featured two candidates, Bachman and Perry, who were unambiguously influenced by overall theoretic ideas and figures from well-established theoretic camps called Christian Reconstructionism and Pentecostal Dominionist movement called the New Apostle Reform. Somebody finally just summed it up. Yes, reporters overall are significantly more liberal than the general population. In fact, almost one in six are more liberal than AOC. Just from the excerpt, this seems like a very carefully crafted study. It's not that there's no bias in reporting, it said. There's no bias in what or who they choose to report about. That would seem to be a very difficult thing to actually measure, but whatever. But it's not biased when you really are smarter than everyone else in the country, except the people who agree with you, of course. Do they actually think that starting their fake news with not fake news is going to convince anyone? Probably, probably, probably fucking not. It's just another bogus study. Everything's a bogus study. And while they were doing this bogus study, they've ignored all the attacks on Hasidic Jews. And just this week, given to me by Gigi, the better half, was this on a New York subway, a white person being beaten the fuck by African-American youth. They don't pick what they cover, but they surely do not cover things they should be doing. Do I need to list all the things the media ignores? African-American youth beating up fucking Jewish people. That is probably a Jewish person, but there's no reference to what 
or who that person was. It was a private citizen filming it. Obama's kids in cages. Do we remember that? That wasn't really covered. We kind of ignored that shit. Didn't really fit with our fucking timeline. I mean, seriously, folks. The soundbite I played up front. I played at least 40 minutes of the left spinning and trying to make killing a terrorist who killed Americans is a bad thing because it's an election year and we don't want Trump to have anything positive. Or the worst reason, we just hate Trump. So we hate him and we must make everything be negative. And more importantly, it is a, if you go back to my old podcast, historically, Democrats have rooted against this country and every conflict going back to World War fucking one. They will always root for Russia, Vietnam, Jane Fonda literally going over there and taking photos that she now regrets. Throwing shit on soldiers. Iraq. Do I have to play the hours of video of people burning bush, burning American flags, no blood, no oil, blah, blah, bush lied, people died, based on a war that was facilitated by the policies of fucking William Clinton. And the moment there were no IDs, the Democrats not funding the war, using it as cannon fodder to try to get elected, throwing out a candidate who was an anti-war protester who also wore some silver, won some silver stars, who then all of a sudden became General fucking Kerry. All the way up to Obama. He is peace. We're going to give him a Nobel Peace Prize. Ignoring the kids in cages. Ignoring fucking him smoking whole villages. Ignoring him watching Iraq turn over to ISIS. Ignoring him Libya debacle. Benghazi debacle. Leaving fucking the region unsecure. But Trump comes in right off the bat. Ambush in Africa. It's his Benghazi. Embassy, it's his Benghazi, killing terrorist leaders. The media will report, Jababa Hababa Salami Baloney, you never even heard of him. Obama ordered a strike. Obama got Osama Bin Laden. He personally got out there with the SEALs, took point, and capped that motherfucker. It was heroic. It was America. Through the entire Iraq war, we had a death count on the TV. The moment Obama became president, we no longer talked about casualties. It just went away. It wasn't there. And now it's back. Spontaneous war protests of about 100 people max at each location got airtime on every fucking network to push Trump bad for killing a terrorist who is directly responsible for the 95th time this podcast for killing American troops, destroying American tanks, maiming, wounding thousands. Not to mention all the fucking Middle Easterners that have died at the hands of that fucking piece of shit. So for our This Is America today, 
I'm playing Chuck Todd misinformation ecosystem. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. It's time for the last sound bite. Like the media say when they are pushing their fake liberal agenda stories. And this is America in 2019. This morning, Meet the Press takes an in-depth look at our post-truth society and how a changing media landscape has created chaos out of order. You've probably never heard of a town in Macedonia called Valles. This is the town where BuzzFeed discovered what was essentially a fake news farm. Some 140 websites pushing out made-up pro-Trump, quote, news stories written for Americans not to help to elect Trump, uh, the candidate, but simply uh, to make money on Facebook. Well, since then, the idea of fake news has become a growth industry, morphing from simply a get-rich-quick scheme in a former Yugoslav Republic to a political weapon in our nationalized politics. The terms, alternative facts and truth isn't truth, debuted here on Meet the Press over the last couple of years, but these ideas are not new. I want to read you guys a letter to the editor that we found in the Lexington Herald-Leader. It was a fascinating attempt at trying to explain why um, some people support President Trump. Here's what he says. Why do good people support Trump? It's because people have been trained from childhood to believe in fairy tales. This set their minds up to accept things that make them feel good. The more fairy tales and lies he tells, the better they feel. Show me a person who believes in Noah's Ark, and I will show you a Trump voter. It, 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 look, this gets at something, Dean, that, that my executive producer likes to say. Is, hey, voters want to be lied to sometimes. They, they, don't, they don't always love being told hard truths. I mean, our job... Um, and it's a hard job, but our job, and I think our newsrooms have been sort of rebuilt to do this, is to uh, very aggressively sort out fact from fiction um, and to very aggressively work to make sure that people trust us and understand that that's our job. I mean, Marty has a, has a very extensive fact-checking operation, yes, as do we. Um, and that, those things didn't exist three or four years ago, and they're, they're an acknowledgment that one of the jobs of the news media is to sort through all of the um, BS, if I can say that, yeah. um, and come to some, and come do the kind of deep reporting that we all grew up doing, to come to some sort of understanding of what's actually happening in the world. And I think that's one of our largest new jobs. Dean, do we have to market the truth? And what I mean by this is, you know, he's out there a lot, essentially delegitimizing our professions. We don't fight back like a candidate. We don't fight back like a campaign. Um, do we need to start campaigning around the country to say, no, 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 here's how facts work. Here's, here's what reporting is. Here's what journalists are. Oh, by the way, if I utter a fact on TV, on Matthew, I want you to address what I think is an ecosystem problem, at least on the right. I want to put up something that one of my colleague Ben Collins put here. It's a, it's a bit of an ecosystem here. He'll say, you'll get something starts on 4chan. There's the subreddit of Trump. Infowars might pick it up. Then it starts inching into the mainstream. Gateway pundit might just say, oh, what's this about? Then it gets to Drudge might have a, 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 a provocative headline link. Rush might say it in his fun little way. Then it does make its way into Fox News. And then, of course, your Facebook feed. How do you create more accountability in the conservative ecosystem for basically dealing with propaganda? 
Well, it's hard work. I and mean, I think it begins by trying to instruct young conservatives in the canons of journalism, mainly empirical verification, right? And this, I think, the distrust of institutions that's longstanding among conservatives has led many of them not e to no longer believe in the idea that you need kind of evidence in order to forward a fact, or they don't believe in certain um, verified sources, credentialed sources of evidence or information. They don't trust any of it. What, one other change that I think it ma makes all of this more difficult is it used to be you can go to the supermarket and you see the tabloids and you see the Weekly World News and the alien has predicted who's going to be the president this year and you move past it. Right. Maybe some people get a chuckle, maybe some people believe it, but it's a minority of the population. Today, you can't ignore it because it's everywhere. And the second you go on one of these platforms, social media in particular, yeah. you're confronted by it. Matthew, he's getting at what I wanted you to tease out here, which is almost the, it's the cultural connection that the right has decided it doesn't have with mainstream media. So it doesn't matter what we report. Well, you don't understand my life, so why should I care? Right, and that cultural disconnect is decades old. Sure. What, what gives us this perfect storm of alt-truth is a few things. One is you have the technological change, which Kara mentions. Another is you have the institutional breakdown, which I think you showed earlier in the program. Confidence in these big institutions is just totally fake. Thank God for Congress, or and then we be and then the and it makes it. Uh, then you have President Trump, right, who kind of plugs into benefits from both of those changes, but also uses it to amplify his message. And so what what you end up with is this place where no one can really agree on the very basic material governing our democracy. Mm -hmm. I the important thing, though, is to recognize that this just didn't organically happen. Uh, you know, this also comes in the context of a war on the institution of independent journalism, a war on the notion of truth that has served the political interests of uh, you know, institutions in the country. I mean, I think Fox News has waged a purposeful campaign over decades to convince people that other people's news wasn't the correct news. In fact, that they were the only providers right, of correct information. The media has always been this way. I scream and yell about it now, but they've always been this way. If you want to do a homework assignment, go back to episode 11, February 22nd, 2016. I think it's still online. And it was, A, is the left even rooting for America anymore? Episode 12 was the top 50 media bias just in the 2000s. Episode 20 was on more media bias. Episode 101 was on Margaret Sanger. Episode 102 was Language Matter Rutgers. This is the first time I started doing College Crazy. That took up uh, 4-16-7-2017 and 4-11-2017 were all on Rutgers. The effects of gay families... Five nine seventeen. Great study shows the eighty percent shows the drugs, suicide, etc. of kids being raised by gay parents or in a gay family. I went back and did some digging before this podcast, but it shows they have never, ever, ever been on the side of America. I believe our online starts with episode 16. So I think you could still, I think you can get episode 11. Um, let me check really quick. It was one of my better shows from oh so long ago. Um, it, it's just astounding. 
because it goes back to all the history from nukes to World War II. I mean, it, the left, when there's a Republican president, invariably is very dovish. But just like with border security, just like with immigration, just like with stopping Arabs from coming to the country, they just turn a blind eye because the media doesn't report in frequency and in relevance on front pages whenever something goes wrong for a Democrat. It just doesn't. Um, the Obama doctrine, I think, is episode 20, and it's just, it shows it failed. It just all failed. Nothing he did was good. I mean, for Christ's sake, they gave him a Nobel Peace Prize. He hadn't done anything just because his name was Obama. And he went around and said, America's bad. So for the world, hey, that's good shit right there. That's that's fucking fantastic. But when you really, really break it down, no. No, it's not good. Not good at all. It created a power vacuum in the in the Middle East that has made it ten times worse and let Iran become powerful. Let this salami motherfucker fuck people up. But to listen to 40 minutes of fucking people trying to equate this guy to an American leader or that it's murder after Obama doing what he did, it just proves my theory, thus my Chuck Todd again. It's just unbelievable the lengths they will go to to protect Democrats. And worse, that they will side with opposition any time they can. That's just who they are. They just can't have intellectual honesty in regards to foreign policy or anything when it comes to Democrats. They will whore themselves out just to fucking own a con. And in this case, it's Trump with an added level of we hate this motherfucker. So, this wraps up another episode of Flower Politic Podcast. Please feel free to share with your family and friends. Send comments to F-O-P-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. Foppodcast gmail.com. Get the show on SoundCloud, Podcast Addict, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, iTunes, Blueberry, and Stitcher. Remember to check out the Facebook page at Podcast and the Twitter page at Fop Tony Reed. We're going to go with a news and social media nuggets because I got the whole damn script pretty much done, but more stuff will fall on 8 Wednesday, 8 January 2020. I apologize I couldn't get it today, and I apologize this is so long, but I was really angry. Probably shouldn't have podcast. wasn't one of my best shows just because I was super, super angry. Um, it is just beyond me, especially with this guy, knowing who he was, knowing... The people I know who are hurt and killed, fuck them all. Fuck the Democrats. Fuck the media for not standing with America. Until Wednesday, folks, take care of yourself. Disconnect from all your devices. Tune back in. I thank you once again for all the listenership over the last year. I hope this year you continue to stay with me, and I hope it's entertaining. As always, thanks for listening. Take care. Thank you for listening to Flyover Politic Podcast. Please check out our Facebook page at FOP Podcast and Twitter account at FOP Tony Reed. Remember, it's a short ride. Thanks.
Every day counts. Thank you.